hey, hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. Are, uh, are we making a? Are we doing an episode? It's been a hot minute. Do you remember how to do this? Mm, mm, <laughs> I have. I have no memory. Um, is this? Was I supposed to watch Evangelion or something? Oh yeah, this? <laughs> this is our comeback. We're you know we're doing a little bit of a relaunch after a short break, and it's oh going to be a God. re-review of Evangelion. Yeah, we're just going to do it every. <laughs> we're going to watch Ava, and then we're going to hibernate for six months, and we're going to watch Ava again. Oh, oh no, um, I, it's been a while. It has. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, I mean, I've been busy. <laughs> uh, this summer has been wild. Um, in terms of life events. Um, but also I feel like it's just been hard to think about the kinds of stuff we usually talk about (laughs) to think about it with any level of like depth or seriousness. Yeah. It's, it's an environment that's very, you know, this is very like first world problem kind of thing, but just like, it's very draining on you. It's just like, you don't really, I mean, I've done a lot of things that I've been meaning to do for a while, you know, around the house and some things like that, but also, you know, sometimes it's just like, I just don't really want to push myself too hard to do this because it's just a very uncertain world out there. And like you said, life events and busyness and work being all over the road in some yeah. weeks. Um, still and waiting to see if my school is going to be able to be one of the few that maintain a on-campus setting for any length of time. We'll see. I mean, so far, so good. It's been like a week, right? Although some other schools did not make it a week. <laughs> yeah, we're on, um, we started the 17th. So what is that? Today's the 16th. Wow, you're almost up to a month. Yeah, so we're getting close. Um, there's some advantages our school has of being a little smaller and not, you know, being outside of a, it's not, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's not one of the, it's not like Penn State or Michigan State or one of these schools that has a crazy, crazy party frats yeah. 40,000 people on campus and are you all shoved in one little town in the mountains it's also not you know a school in in a big urban center like temple or you know wherever so it's it's it's, it's probably safe to say that the average level of seriousness and responsibility of a villanova student is probably a few clicks higher than a penn state student Probably. I mean, there's definitely, I'm sure, segments of each that would be sure. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's there's definitely a amount of um, uh, but if rich, you ha- rich privilege at Villanova that sort of maybe obfuscates that a little bit. If you had to but if you had to if, if there was some measurement of this kind of like not being a knucklehead, whatever that is, if you could measure that and you could measure it for every student, I bet you the median or the average Villanova knucklehead quotient would be lower. <laughs> You're probably right about that. I also think that, you know, most of the students live in on-campus housing. So you have some little more control, measures of control there. Yeah. Um, There's not these big, you know, 30, 40 person frat houses like you might have at a big state flagship. And they're not, not everyone's out in the community uh, doing, you know, whatever. I mean, there's, there's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a really, it's a really, really, really weird time for higher education. I'll tell you that. I and imagine it's so. It's also made me be like, hmm, maybe this is a little fraught, but hopefully it'll be okay. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just been, I just feel like that the world, there is so much like serious stuff to think about and so much uncertainty that like sitting down and coming up with, a point of view on the Snyder cut 
just doesn't <laughs> feel like a good use of my time. Not that I'm doing anything terribly important, but it's just, I will say it's been, a lot of this stuff has just felt kind of smaller, Um, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, um, I get it. Uh, things tend to take, you know, you tend to fall away as everything else in your in the world and your life pushes into your mental capacity. And I... And I don't want to say that like, oh, this, you know, uh, this whole thing of, you know, the world falling apart has shown me that these things were never important. <laughs> like, that's not what I'm trying to say. Like, I still think that, you know, like fiction and entertainment and games are important. I think it's just that it's tough to figure out how they're important when the world is in such flux. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's also just been a, a general lack of that stuff, right? Oh, I mean, oh, yeah. There's been less to respond to. <laughs> you know, it's just things are delayed and things are pushed off. And, and it's also this was just I was reading an interesting thing that I was talking about how for a couple of companies, namely Disney, that this came, you know, from a purely, you know, like cynical point of view, like at a really good time because you know, Star Wars was kind of done. We, and we talked about this last year, how 2019 was sort of like, or I guess beginning of this year, right? How like a lot of things kind of quote unquote ended, right? And yes. there was kind of a, a, a down period. And it just happened to, co- you know, align with this. Right. The great pause, as some people are calling it. The end of the end of Star Wars, the end of the, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it. Um Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones. Right. Yeah. Right. There was that was yeah, Marvel, they did Marvel that, Netflix they? was done. You know, there's just a ton of things that kind of just like, and eh, we're done. And there wasn't really a lot scheduled to begin with. And things that were weren't really of mega interest. I kind of looked at the, you know, we talked about, you know, earlier on like, oh, what are we looking forward to? It's like, oh, there's this and this. And it's kind of like, all right, well, I guess Dune which comes out in like December. <laughs> if we're uh, lucky. If we're lucky. Yeah. Which we'll, yeah. we'll get to. But um. Yeah, it's it it is weird. And just speaking of Disney and um a really interesting thing that occurred to me. Um so they Disney had um you know the 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 one release that Disney, you know, kind of had to do kind of quick problem solving for was Mulan. Mm-hmm. Which was already fraught for other reasons. Um but you know what they did was and when I say Disney, I mean mainline, like you know Disney as as a studio, Disney as a you know a brand, not uh, a megacorp. But they had to deal with Mulan, and so what they did was they said, okay, we're not going to do a theatrical release. We're going to do basically a pay per view through Disney Plus. Now, on the surface, you think, oh, of course, sure, that makes sense. But as I thought about it, I thought Disney Plus was always billed as just a streaming service, right? There was never any part of Disney Plus pre-pandemic where we were like, uh, where they were saying, oh, this is going to be like, it's going to have the, the, all the libraries of this, that, and the other thing. And we've also built in a mechanism where you'll be able to do pay-per-view for movies, right? That was never a thing. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, we're just going to sell it to you through Disney Plus. And it's like, oh, interesting. What that implies is that this whole time, Disney Plus has had a pay-per-view function built into it that they were just waiting to use, right? Because we've seen how long it takes these guys to implement features in, you know, in in, in streaming platforms, right? Like Netflix has been talking about a shuffle button for like three years and we still don't have it. But 
Disney Plus apparently had a pay-per-view, an entire pipeline for that built into it, ready to be flipped on by Disney, which is kind of amazing and also kind of crazy. Um, But the fact that the software engineers and everybody else at Disney was forward thinking enough to say like, yeah, I don't know when and if we're going to need this, but there will probably be a time in the future where we want to sell pay-per-view movies through this. So let's build that. Let's build that infrastructure now so we can turn it on when we need it. Um, whereas, again, you know, like other platforms, you know, Twitter's like, we'll have an edit button for you. And, and like, it's going to take a long it's going to take like it's going to take like a decade, though. <laughs> Just bear <laughs> with us. Um, but the fact that Disney had this ready to go, it's it's fascinating. What do you think of the there's a lot of people who are very upset at least there's among other things, but let's talk purely about the economic model of releasing this. What is it? $30 on Disney plus to watch Mulan. We talked a lot about this in our coronavirus episode, talking about movie theaters, um, which kind of surprised we haven't seen major bankruptcy and closures yet. Still, I think probably to come, I don't see how movie theater, especially, you know, if the current estimate of mid 2021 for a widespread effective vaccine is to be believed. The only thing I can think of is that most of the big theater chains must own their buildings. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, uh, leasing them from landlords um, because which maybe makes sense because, you know, if you're in a, a big strip mall, you know, you're going to you can lease a big, you know, 20,000 square foot thing because it could be a grocery store. It could be an old Navy. It could be blah, blah, blah. But a movie theater can only be a movie theater. Yeah, you don't um, see a lot of conversions of like, you know, movie theaters which, to other things or vice versa. So that might be a part of it. But anyway, ah, 30 bucks. Is it 30 bucks and then I own it or is it 30 bucks and I watch it once? I think it's 30 bucks and you can I actually don't know this. I, I, I'm postulating that maybe it's 30 bucks and you can watch it for like a day. So uh, it's a $30 rental, basically. That seems high. Let me confirm. Gotta say. Yeah, I mean, it, it was what I mean, we talked about, the economics of that and model of like, you know, well, if you go to the movies and see it, you pay 15 bucks a head. So the minute you have more than two people watching it once, you're, you're breaking money. You know, but it's not the same experience as watching right. it in a theater. So, uh, right. I don't know. Um, but they kind of need, you know, despite, uh, oh no, I lied. It is once you, uh, $30, you'll be able to purchase premier access to Milan. You'll be able to watch this film as many times as you want, as long as you're an active Disney plus subscriber. So you're right. basically unlocking it in your library, which is a little bit more attractive, but then also kind of strange because is there going to be a point where it is no longer a premier access? This is the first time we sort of have a, a premier tier of a streaming I, service. I think what they mean is, um, I think what that implies is that uh, you're getting access to it before it before it's available, you know, for some period of time before it's available to the unwashed masses. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, you're basically buying early access to it. Yeah. It's like when you can pre-order a video game and you get it like two days ahead of time yeah. and you get a pin or something. And I'm just like, why do people pay extra money for this? <laughs> Oh, boy. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Don't pre-order video games, people. Yes, please do not. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's hard because on one hand, it's like, ooh, that's a little steep. You know, it's it's it feels like it's kind of opening up a strange, arriving a dead sort of pay-per-view model that's really only used for sports, specific sports, I guess, um, nowadays, mainly wrestling and 
boxing or whatever UFC. Um, but at the same time, studios are going to need if movie theaters die or, you know, just, you know, whatever they exist in right now, people just can't go or won't go. Their streaming services make a lot of money. They can put a lot of money into content. However, it's a, it's a difference of scale of putting out a billion dollars for the next Avengers, right? I mean, yeah. two Avengers movies or whatever. Well, so yes, it, the economic scale just isn't going to work for that. I feel like, and they're going to need a method to make a little extra money on some of the big high production movies. I mean, comedies and things like that. Those those can go to you know they can be Netflix and HBO Max and whatever, and it's probably not a big deal. But your big blockbusters, I, I don't know. So that so one that this could signal the return of the mid-budget film, which which had become basically financially unviable um, in the old economics of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Isn't Where, our streaming services kind of already doing that though, like mid-budget? Right. So so, yeah. but you know, but if you uh, so that that's a thing. I mean, part of me. I mean, not to get too socialist about it, but I don't know that the budgets of these films need to be as big as they have been. And thus, everything that they need to support them in order to have that budget, you know, all of the licensing tie ins and, um, uh, you know, deals with like the Chinese military (laughs) in order to like make your movie work. Um, You know, it could be that um, that they don't need to be as big as they were. And thus, you know, maybe maybe we can scale things back a bit and still have good movies it's not like we only started getting good movies when they started costing entire countries worth of money, you know? True. Very true. Very true. I, I think that, you know, and, and as effects continue to, you know, digital effects and, and things continue to be cheaper, more widespread, more easily accessible, that makes it easier. I mean, I, I look at shows like, you know, they just said they're not per, not moving forward with the third season of Altered Carbon, which was said to be the most expensive thing Netflix has made. You know, we look at the budgets of Game of Thrones. Um, pretty expensive to make. Um, I'm sure some of the bigger movies that Netflix has made are probably more in the mid-budget category with things like uh, Extraction or uh, what was the one with Will Smith, Bright. Um, those probably cost a, a chunk of change. But yeah, I, I'm curious because there was that weird sort of blow in like the, what was that, like the the mid-2000s maybe where like movies got super expensive. I remember particularly it was like Spider-Man 3 and like Pirates of the Caribbean 3 were both like $330 million. And it was like, holy shit. And then like studios kind of like scaled back a little bit. And Marvel was part of that because they kind of made their movies on the quote unquote cheap, right? You know, Iron Man 1 was like probably $120 million. In the beginning. In the beginning. <laughs> but then they started being able to do whatever the hell they want because they're the biggest movies ever. Right. And Avengers Infinity War and... Endgame were, you know, reported to be about a billion dollars put together, which is kind of insane. So I just I'm curious how that model interacts. While at the same time, I also wanted to bring up in the same vein that the thing that I've been asking for is happening, Greg. It's happening. Mm -hmm. This integrated model of, you know, larger universe between TV and movies and the blurring of that is occurring. A couple of examples of that being. Uh, well, obviously, we knew the Marvel stuff, Marvel TV shows that are coming at some point. Who knows when? Um, I think we're getting one this year, maybe. Um, I guess it would be Winter Soldier and uh, Falcon, I oh, think. Oh, God. I, um, I get bored just thinking about that show. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of excited for it. But I think at this point, I'm, I'm like, 
I've had enough of a drought of Marvel and I'm like, I'm back in baby. Like oh. sign me up for whatever. <laughs> um, but you know, that we knew it was happening, but now we also have two other kind of interesting announcements, which is not announcements. These have been new, but you know, we're catching up here. Um, <clears throat> the Dune sisterhood show uh-huh. is going to be directly tied and integrated to the movie including Denny Villeneuve directing the first episode or whatever and like being part of the production. So it's an integrated approach. And then probably most importantly is this new Gotham show, not called Gotham. It's called Gotham PD because there needs to be a world where two different shows existed called Gotham that isn't directly a Batman show. Um, anyway, but that's going to be a direct prequel to the upcoming Matt Reeves the Batman movie yeah. and has him in the involvement and be, you know, all integrated. And it seems like and there's been some hints of some other properties and stuff moving this route. And that's exciting to me. It also, it plays an interesting role in here. Cause it's like, like you said, well, maybe we move away from big $350 million tentpole movies and you do TV shows that have some bigger two two hour specials that are basically climactic movies that you know bridge different series or are climactic moments in a series i don't know something like that like the model i think is going to break down a little bit as you move away from if theaters are really on their last leg here so a dune um well let me back up i mean i think that it might make some sense uh for the studios to start thinking about these things, because um, if you think about it in terms of we're going to do all of this production design for this movie, we're going to build all of these sets. We're going to, you know, come up with this visual style. We're going to get all these costumes together. And, um, you know, it costs me a certain amount of money to design Gotham City for the new Bath- Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that money spent, whether I use that design for Gotham City for one movie or if I also use that for a bunch for for a series of TV. Right. So because the work is being done for the movie, it essentially saves the you know, that 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 that's, you know, that's just re- free resources that the TV show can use to a certain extent. So the TV show is getting cheaper because it's borrowing assets from the movie, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um and there's presumably some money saved on the marketing side because the TV show and the movie are both, you know, promoting each other. So it's probably, yeah, it probably does make sense on the balance sheet a little bit. Uh, specifically, I'm curious about the Dune one because uh, the Bene Gesserit, the, you know, the sex witches um, of Dune are something that, you know, is a little unexplored and potentially very interesting, um, at least unexplored early in the in the series, the franchise, I should call it, because um, a series implies an idea and an end. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so, so to me, that's a little interesting. And I also think that, you know, Jessica, Lady Jessica, who I think this the prequel series is going to be centered on, I think is an interesting character who could use more development. Um, but I, I continue to be painfully disinterested in anything Batman related that doesn't have Batman in it. I kind of feel like the best part of Batman is Batman Uh, and trying to make me care about cops who are bad at being Batman. Oh, I don't know if I want to watch that. You know, I, I, I beat this horse dead so many times, you know, about just like DC, just make shit about the stuff you 
about the things you have, like stop making shows about it. And the, so the fact that there is now going to be a second series about Gotham sans Batman, I mean, maybe he'll show up more in this. I, I would hope, I would assume, but it's just like, why <laughs> just stop doing this? Like, just make the movie about the thing. I'm not like, I'm not terribly interested in how Gotham city became a crime ridden hellhole. That's not that the, Gotham city isn't interesting until Batman comes to town. Well, it's Democrat run cities, Greg. Didn't you know that's what happens? Is that, <laughs> is that what happened? Right. Um, no, I'm with you. It's just like, there's really nothing to say. Like, I get it. Like, you know, it's a, Especially in the timing when Batman was made, you know, cities were dangerous and and whatever, or had a, you know, had a stigma of being dangerous. And this is a particularly bad one. And there's corruption and the mob and all these different things. Like, I've seen those movies, right? Right. I've seen Godfather. I've seen whatever. Like, I get it. I have never seen a Batman movie or a Batman TV show or read a Batman comic book or ate a Batman popsicle where (laughs) I was like, I'm sorry, I just... I this none of this hangs together until I understand how this city got so bad. And I I just I refuse to believe that the Gotham City Police Department is so inept that uh that they need a vigilante. Like you have to prove this to me. No, I don't care. Right. I'm not interested in, you know, um the origin story of Inspector Bullock. No thank you. <laughs> and and unfortunately, you know, for better or worse, the big anchors of any, at least in this case, superhero universe, they've got a sort of gravity to them where you, you're never really going to get back to like Look what happened with Gotham. I've not watched it, but I've read enough to know the general trend. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Eventually you have every villain from Batman plus some new ones mixed in and still no Batman. Then you kind of have Batman. So why don't you just make a Batman show in the first place? Now, right. I mean, over in the over in the, the CW universe, it's like, well, we're not going to, I mean, and this is fine. Great character on our own. But, like, we're not going to make a Superman show or a Batman show. We're going to make a Green Arrow show and a Supergirl show. It's like, okay, fine. But then eventually they just introduce Batman and Superman anyway. And it's just like, well, why didn't we just do this all? Well, I, okay, what right. are we doing here? Right. I, I it, it's, it just seems, you know. The, the Gotham, I, I, I never watch an episode of Gotham because I'm not a I'm not a masochist. <laughs> but from what I understood, a huge part of like the meta tension of the show is which one of these characters turns out to be the Joker. And they kept faking you out, apparently, uh, over the course of nine seasons or however long this thing went on. And then when is he going to get the Batsuit? When are we finally going to get to some Batman stuff? So your entire show is just playing with the tension of when do we get to see the characters we care about? And that is such a uh, a manipulation of your audience. Yeah. And I mean, they did the same thing with Smallville, right? It's like some of the tension is, from what I understand, once again, not a masochist, didn't watch it, but just like. When's he going to learn to fly? When's right. he going to put on the suit? And he doesn't do it till like the last episode. And it's like, okay, well, like, I don't know. It's just. Yes. <sighs> the whole thing is just this long tease of getting to the part you care about. And to me, that's manipulation because the creators are like, we know what the audience cares about. And we're just going to keep dangling it in front of them with make them sit through an hour of show every week, never showing them what they want to see. Well, and I feel like it's a very. Like it stems from a different style of TV, an older style of TV making, which was very about that. Right. The biggest thing, the biggest thing I can think of is, you know, and there's there's a place for this kind of tension to exist within, you know, fiction. Don't don't get me wrong there. But like 
the will they won't they dynamic yeah. right and so many so many shows especially sitcoms and and more in comedy you know dramedies or whatever like are about that sort of like will they won't they you know and then the, when they finally do the show's pretty much over and it's like okay i get that to a degree but also like only ever doing that it feels like manipulation to me um my lovely wife one of her quarantine safety activities was rewatching everyone's favorite show greg your wife's favorite show my wife's favorite show your favorite show gilmore girls mm-hmm. <laughs> and once again i've you know picked up probably the equivalent of a season's worth of episodes stretched over the what seven or so seasons that it was on and i used to be pretty neutral on the show greg but man i do not like this show now mm. watching it um, interesting and but just some of the will they won't they tension in that with you know particularly the luke and lorelei characters is just like oh my god you're killing me I mean, some of that is particular, just the fact that Lorelai is the worst, objective worst person ever. But the show's better if you read it with her as the villain. <laughs> I, you're absolutely right. Um, it's just every scene. You can basically start a, a stopwatch and be like, and here's what she makes it about herself and go. OK, and we're there. <laughs> yeah. The the one of the central conflicts of the show is um, her obscenely wealthy parents offer to send her her daughter to the Ivy League college of her choice. Um, and the only thing they ask for in return is like Sunday evening dinners with their granddaughter. <laughs> and we are supposed to, the show expects us to be like those fucking monsters. <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> and like, it's, it's an absurd television show. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it wants us to look at and to, to look at Lorelai, who also lives in like a $3 million home on an, on a, uh, on a, you know, a hotel manager salary, um, is, is we're supposed to be rooting for her when all she does is just piss all over the incredible generosity and patience of her parents and the affections of, uh, of every man in the world. <laughs> yeah. One of the biggest things I've picked up on that show, and this is hard because I, you know, I, I think I was looking back with different, uh, maybe not roasted to glasses, but uh, some generosity, I guess, was uh, we had watched the Netflix revival, which kind of, you know, is it, it is fine, but it kind of fixes some of those issues because, you know, it was made in a more modern time and you're just like, oh, you know, some things actually make sense here. And they especially spent a lot of time with um, Lorelai's mother, Emily, and really humanize her and, you know, because the actor who who played, I forget his name, um, the father passed away and that was a big crux of the show is kind of, you know, kind of well done. But I went, you know, going back and watching the show, especially the earlier season, I'm like, all of these people suck. Like every single person on the show is objectively either uh, the flimsiest of two dimensional caricature, like some of the mm-hmm. people in the town or they're just like the worst with maybe the exception of like Luke. He seems to be like relatively stable in the show, but like. Lorelai, her mother, her father. I mean, later seasons, they start to, you know, take on a little more of like a sympathetic, but all of them is like, none of these characters are sympathetic. And like, Rory's kind of like barely in it some of the time. It's so much about Lorelai. It's just like, oh God, it's just so, I don't know. It starts to get this like. They're all insufferable. Yes, There's no one to root for. One. <laughs> yeah. There are very few people to root for in the show. Um, and then when, when you realize that the show is really asking you to root for Lorelai, who, um, basically almost at every turn of the show she gets everything she ever wanted and hates it (laughs) like everything every moment of that show is her life getting more and more perfect or having the option to get more and more perfect and her 
uh, just steering the exact opposite way. And we're supposed to like, um, and, and it's not a tragedy, right? This is not like, it's not breaking bad where we, where, you know, the point is that Walt's making bad decisions and we're supposed to see the outcomes of it. It's right. like Lorelai makes bad decisions and we're supposed to be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's really the right thing. And then the soundtrack's like, la 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 la. <laughs> it's, Oh, it's a, <laughs> I also hate that bit too, but um, um, it's, 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 it's a world where um, there is an incredible, like centered around an incredibly self-centered, self-destructive person. Um, but the the wish fulfillment factor is, but what if that was fine and good and actually everything's fine? <laughs> and actually you're right to just hate everything that's ever handed to you. <laughs> yes. Um, sorry for the Gilmore Gross digression, but I nope. had to get off my chest. It's the but... perfect Gen X television show. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it, it has this, it has that tension that is, and they do a little more to the show goes on, but by the time it's, it's done, it, it's, it's it's done and you don't get to actually see it in action, which is kind of, to me, not so much fun. What's one of the things I always really liked about, um, and that happens oftentimes with romantic relationships. I like when you actually get to see our characters together for some length of time, um, because that's what we were waiting for. And the idea of a happily, that's also a very, you know, a very Gen X prior thing. It's like, Oh, well, they all lived happily ever after. And so well, like, well, that's not how it works. <laughs> and, and the truth is that like, if your show is at heart, a romance, right? Romance, as a genre, whether we're talking about, you know, literature or theater or anything, it's about courtship. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they get into a committed relationship, it stops being a romance story. Um, so I get that. But if your show is a comedy first with romantic elements, then it's like, yeah, like there's actually comedy to be had about a couple who is out of the courtship phase. But when you're making a sitcom, it's tough because now we have to transition from like we know how to write courtship to oh, now we now we have to know how to write the problems of a young couple, you know? Yeah, that's tough. I, I think I think New Girl did that fairly well. I mean, they've got the Willy won't they a little bit and they kind of bring it back again. But you see different stages of that relationship. And one other thing, you know, which oof. Tenuous topic nowadays, but anything related to Joss Whedon. But I remember reading when he was making Firefly and, you know, he pitched it. They were like, okay, but, you know, Wash and um, Zoe, uh, Alan Tudor's character, you know, they can't be married. Like, that's 100% off the table. Like, they have to be a will they, won't they? And there has to be a love triangle and blah, blah. And he was just like, no, I'm not making the show if you do that because I want to have just like a married couple that's comfortable together. And yeah, they might experience blips or whatever as the show goes on, as any pe- any couple does. But like, I don't want to do a just another generic romance. So that was one thing he like, we put his foot down. I'm like, I always really liked that because you don't see it all that often. It's no. either, they're all, they're always either the old parents, right? You know, like, or, or the young, well, they won't, they kind of thing. And it's like, no, they're just like a young couple that's married and they're happy together and they'll fight sometimes, but it's fine. It was nice. I know, I know that, you know, it removes some of the, what people, you know, probably the old, old hats are like, but we need well, what they would call like, you know, points of conflict or dramatic tension. And it's like, you can still have those in a marriage. It's just going to look a little different. Right. You know, it's, 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 yeah, you just, it's, it, you take, it's no longer, and you can't just transition to like, now the will they or won't they is, will they get divorced? Like it can be done. There's not as many models for it. Um, you know, where does the dramatic tension come from in a show about a married couple who doesn't have kids yet? Right. You know, um, because in a in a typical family sitcom, 
you know, a lot of times the, the kids will introduce dramatic tension, right? right? The kids bring a problem into the home. You know, the kid, you know, the, he's having trouble at school or there's a bully or there's the drugs episode or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, they, they upset the, the status quo. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, a, it, 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 it's tiring. Yeah. Well, they won't, they. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough about that. I don't think we need to reiterate that for people always. But um, anyway, Gilmore Girls, not not nope. as good as uh, nope. it's done. It's done. Bad show. Um, anyway, want to talk about some TV? Yeah, we could talk about some television. I watched I watched a little bit of television. So I haven't watched much. I started, I was, I was kind of way behind and I watched Westworld, although I have not finished the third season because I fell asleep during the first episode and haven't picked it up again. <laughs> And I was starting to get a little lost. Um, not lost, but just like who's in charge of yeah. who and whatever. Um, but anyway, maybe we can talk about that a separate time. Uh, but what I did watch recently that I liked was the second season of the Umbrella Academy. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? I did. Um, you know, it's not a perfect show. It's definitely a, a, a more of like a B tier show for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, it's fun. They have a fun style. The characters are enjoyable. The yeah. setting was interesting of being in the 60s and, you know, you, you had some sort of like, you know, uh, different elements that, that were, uh, yeah, I couldn't say if they ever handled particularly great or poorly, but you got to see some interesting stuff. I think seeing a character, you know, a, a particularly like a black woman from the 2019s, you know, in the 1960s was obviously very interesting and, and the, the way they take that. But so I only I haven't watched the second season. Yet. I watched the first season. So it, there's a time travel element where Yeah, so at the end of the first season if you recall, they sort of they finally sort of get through to Vanya's character as she's going on her like uh, spoilers alerts I guess, but um you know, she has her turn and then kind of has another turn but it's too late and they've started the apocalypse. So 5 jumps them back in time. Oh, right, right, um, right, right, right. right. And, and they that's show up, up at different points in like the mid 60s and it all kind of is focused around uh Basically, they've fucked up the timeline yet again, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And it's all around kind of the Kennedy assassination. They're all they all they all been Dallas, Texas in the 60s, Um, you know, and um, it's I thought it was I actually think I probably enjoyed it more than the first season. Hmm. It's it's a little more heavy than the first season. It's a little more dramatic, I'd say. Plenty of fun stuff. But um, a lot of the all the characters, I think, go on like a pretty solid arc they do a little bit of like the the one character's like oh i have amnesia and it's like well that's convenient like um but they don't spend you know too much time waiting around for that to be real it's also only an episode so you know it moves at a decent clip um i would i really would recommend the show like i said it's not it's it's maybe i wouldn't say a b show but we're saying if it's triple a television or whatever like this might be like a single a television (laughs) like it's it's just fine it's fine it's fun um i think that they do some fun sci-fi stuff they do some fun um you know, there's a lot of mystery in the world. Uh, they left it at another big cliffhanger for the next season, which I think has already been confirmed. You know, they've got some fun. They do a lot of like, you know, pop songs and funny kind of fight scenes set to that kind of style and, and kind of like in a guardian sort of way. Uh, the, the family, you know, the, all the characters of the family are, are pretty, I think, compelling and interesting. And yeah, I, I would recommend the second season for sure. Huh, I'll check it out. I, I, I've been hearing good things. Um, I felt like the first season was, I mean, it, it held my attention, but I also felt like it was maybe a little too far up its own ass in terms of its, like, style, capital S, style. Yeah. Um, but it seems like people, 
the vibe I'm getting from from you and from other reviews I've 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 kind of skimmed is that this is a little bit a little bit less of that. Yeah, it has a little bit more of a I think it has a more of a dramatic arc to stand itself on rather than just the style of like oh or like a quirky fucked up X Men yeah you know? um which is still there but um I, I think that. Then you yeah. introduce new characters that are good, and uh, it, you know, once again, it falls in that sort of very we talked about before this very like irreverent superhero uh, show kind of pattern that's like the boys or preacher, where it's like, I mean, not quite as fucked up as those for sure, but you know, it's like oh, they're not, they're not afraid to do some fucked up stuff sometimes and uh, show some crazy and wild scenes, and it's all a little bit like laughing at itself at points or. Or maybe at other points it's too it is too far up its own ass, but maybe it knows it's too far up its own ass. Who knows? But I liked it. Good. Uh speaking of um shows that are fine. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to talk about a show that is on um AMC. I think it just finished its second season, and I would imagine it's last based on what I know about it. Um, well, first I'll recommend the book because I think the book is better than the show, but I'm going to talk mainly about the show. The name of the book and the show, um, is it's got a funny spelling, which is N O S four a two. It's a vanity license plate that spells out Nosferatu. Oh God. Okay. Bear with me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the book is written by Joe Hill, son of Stephen King, um, and very much uh, what if Stephen King, but slightly better at writing endings. That's Joe Hill. Um, this, I think, is his third novel. Um, I read Lock and Key, which is a comic book he did, which I enjoyed. Um, it's it's definitely in the lane of like Stephen King, like kind of high concept, maybe a little overdeveloped dark fantasy or dark magical realism, I guess you could call it. Um, cause it's not really horror. Um, it's not trying to spook you, but it is about a, uh, sort of vampire with a magical Rolls Royce who adopts, abducts children and like steals their youth, but they're still kids, but he just turns them into like little psycho vampires and then they go to live in a magical theme park in his brain called Christmas Land. I know this doesn't sound very good, <laughs> but it's actually a really good book in just that kind of like um, it's a uh, it's a dark fantasy in a modern day. Right. There's you know, it takes place in more or less, you know, the, the present day, our world. But there are certain magical people and some of them are bad. Um and the character, the vampire character named Charlie Manx, is a really good, just like villain. Um, I've heard him described as Willy Wonka, but a serial killer. And that's pretty, pretty accurate. Um, it's really good. Um, so I read the book and I learned that AMC had made a show and that the show was fine. And I was like, you know what I need right now? A show that is fine. And I've already read the book. So I can just kind of skim the show. You know, I don't need to like give it my full attention because I know what's happening. Right. And it's more about just kind of watching it for like, oh, let's see how they did this and let's see how they changed that. Um, And uh, it's 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 decent. It's it's dumb and it's kind of bad. But um, Zachary Quinto plays the uh, the bad guy, Charlie Manx. And I think I've come to the following conclusion. The only two people I want in movies 
are Carl Urban and Zachary Quinto. <laughs> I want Carl Urban to be the anti-hero, and I want Zachary Quinto to be the villain, and that's just what I want from movies from now on. <laughs> um, it's it's going to be great. Let's just do that. Um, uh, but he does a great job. Like he's he knows. Like he clearly and and Zachary Quinto has always got this. Like Zachary Quinto always knows exactly what movie or TV show he's in, and dials things up or down accordingly <laughs> um and he definitely knows in this movie he is a uh a magical vampire who drives a magical rolls royce and has a secret theme park in his brain called christmas land where he brings children and also for at least half of the show he has to just chew the scenery through some usually pretty bad old man makeup uh and it's it's fine. I I think I rec- I definitely recommend the book and I think I recommend the show. If you're looking for something a little cheesy, a little pulpy with a, a couple occasional moments of brilliance, this show is 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 worth a watch. And the book is definitely worth a read. No matter what you think of the premise as I described it, <laughs> you should read the book. Um it's like, and I've had this problem with when I've had to describe Stephen King stuff as well. Like when you talk about it, it sounds dumb, but when you're actually in it, it all works, you know? Um, huh. Like That's... when someone explains it, the plot of it, it, you're all, everybody's like, that sounds like the dumbest fucking thing. It's a clown. But then when you like read it or watch the first half of the new movies you're like oh okay this is all working so i i recommend nosferatu by joe hill um either book first show is also fine but if you watch this show and we're like i wish this was better that's the book <laughs> that's really weird i had not heard of that being a thing um i probably would have scrolled past a title like that uh but that's weird very weird indeed it is weird but it is it is <laughs> it is definitely decent uh, the book does a lot of has a lot of really interesting. Um, uh, it does a really good job because it it takes place over the course of like it basically has a 10 year time jump in it. And um, the first kind of half of it is about like, um, you know, like a teenager who's discovering her magical powers and, you know, um, uses it to like apprehend a like magical serial killer. And then you skip ahead like 10 years and like it does a really good job of doing that thing that a lot of things don't don't do is like what's the rest of that person's life like you know mm, mm-hmm. like because you know if you think about like okay so for example Harry Potter right he goes to this high school experience which involves a lot of murder and world saving and monsters and like what happens after that like do you think he'd be in therapy like, really would Harry Potter become dude. an alcoholic <laughs> after all that? Um, and uh, and then like 10 years later, you know, like in the Harry Potter world, it, it's, you know, like, would people take him seriously? You know, like, yeah, no, that that serial killer that was he was he his that was Voldemort. He was like an, an evil, dark wizard. And people are like wizards. What are you talking about, Harry? Um, <laughs> so this this does a really good job with that of, you know, basically showing you the, the, the main character, Vic. Vic McQueen is her name. Like her life goes to shit after all of this because it's an intense trauma for her to go through all this as a teenager, but then also to have to keep so much of it a secret because there's like magic and vampires involved, right? Mm. 
but she has to like tell a story as like, oh, this guy was just like a regular, you know, child serial killer. Um, and then the fact that the world won't listen to her actually has like real implications on the plot later when her kid disappears and she's trying to explain like, no, that serial killer that kidnapped me 10 years ago, um, he's back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> he kidnapped my son. I know I was in in a mental hospital for a year because um, I kept getting calls from dead children on the phone. Um, but that was real. And you have to believe me. And it, it, it's actually like it does a very good job of like including those kind of real world thought experiments in its like, you know, story where this stuff is really happening. So it's it's very good. The, the show plays with that a little less, but it also get, just gives you more um, just super hammy uh, villainy, which is worth it. Hmm. That sounds interesting. Um, I might check that out then because I don't I'm not really watching anything right now, although the boys second season just dropped, which I haven't started yet. But yeah, very much looking forward to that. Also been a lot of casting announcements for the third season, and I'm very excited for that as well. Um, One of the boys from Supernatural. I know. I know your worlds are colliding. It's like but it's like I mean, it makes sense because it's the guy who's made Supernatural originally is the guy running the boys. But uh, it's just it's literally the first time I'm going to see this guy in anything else. Uh-huh. Like the other one has been, yeah, he's been in some, he's been in Gilmore Girls and whatever else. Like I've never seen uh, Jensen Ackles in anything but Supernatural, so I'm kind of interested to see um, how that goes. He was originally supposed to be Hawkeye, actually, but because um, Josh Whedon really liked him and and wanted him in, but just scheduling oh, with Supernatural was. I was thinking Hawkman, and I was like, oh, I'm glad they didn't put Hawkman in anything. <laughs> you said Hawkeye. Yes, yes, he's okay. supposed to have Jeremy Renner spot better, allegedly. Better, got it. Um. But yeah, so uh, OTV. So we get to Mandalorian in October, I guess. Um, so that's something to look forward to. I'm also planning to watch. I haven't picked up my HBO Max subscription yet, but um, I'm going to watch Lovecraft Country. Country. I heard yeah. it was just okay, but uh, I guess this is. I guess that that's my review of it. I watched the first episode, and I haven't watched any more of it. Oh no. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's because I. I mean, I read the book and found the book to be just okay. Okay. Um, and the show seems to be doing a pretty faithful job of being just okay. <laughs> um, but they make some aesthetic choices, at least in the first episode, that I thought were uh, ill-advised. One of them being uh, one, and this is nitpicky, but like this is a show that takes place in the 60s, but they included in the soundtrack a lot of like modern hip-hop and r&b which is jarring mm, that's true you know what i mean yeah it it it, it, it creates a it, it creates a, a sense of alienation because it, you you know you lose that sense of time and place um another thing and it, it's uh the show opens with kind of an extended dream sequence and it's pretty well put together because it, it's meant to kind of show how um like this character's you know like you know like uh, war stories from his, you know, his 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 dad and grandfather are mixing up in his in his dreams with, um, you know, the baseball with, with you know like baseball stars and with the like uh you know nineteen fifties nineteen sixties sci fi and Lovecraft that he's reading. Um, and there are elements of that dream sequence where like it's 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 like. Yeah, no, that alien looks like a 1950s alien because that's the kind of alien he sees in the movies. So, like, of course, 
But then when there's other elements within that, it looks like very modern, like CG Lovecraft monster. And I'm like, wait, which is it? You know, mm-hmm. is this is it kind of a retro future thing or is it not? And it's just a weird alienating mix. And I feel like that's a big part of what's wrong with the show aesthetically is that it just I feel like it just it came out of the oven a little too quick uh, on those sorts of things. Or I feel like it, it it needs a more cohesive aesthetic direction to work. And uh, that's my biggest complaint. But gotcha. I'd be curious to wait. Curious what you think, um, having not read the book. Yeah, which I would like to do at some point. But um, yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out soon. Although if I'm completely frank, there's a big part that's probably just going to rewatch The Expanse soon because <laughs> m- to segue, my brain is just so still in The Expanse because I'm reading the books and I'm on the sixth book of which there will be nine total. The ninth one was supposed to come out in 2020, uh, but I think it might be 2021 now. Like it, it's not, this isn't like a George R. R. Martin thing. It's like a, I just haven't, they said they were very close to being done with it. Like since the rules, I don't know if COVID messed some things up as of August, they were saying like, we're very close to being done. So, um, also there's like a couple, you know, short stories and novellas in there. I've read as well as the story progresses. And right now they sort of have aligned the show with the books season. So the first season was the first half of book one, which is kind of strange. Um, it ends in a logical point, but, and then they kind of catch up in the second season. So the second season is the second half of book one and all of book two. And then from that point forward, season three is book three, season four is book four, and they're going to proceed that direction, it seems. And last they said is they're really trying to do the whole series. And hopefully, since it's like something Jeff Bezos really likes, maybe they'll <laughs> do it. Uh, because I, the fourth season was not bad. I'm going to just, the fourth season slash book, not bad. An interesting sort of like spur in the story, I'd say that has some important ramifications and was, it was fun and interesting, but I was kind of like, Oh, that wasn't exactly where I thought the story was going. And it kind of feels like the show is changing a little bit or the book's changing a little bit, but then it's sort of like rubber bands really hard back to being like exactly what I wanted. And the fifth book and now the sixth book, I'm just 130% in. It's just, this is exactly what I want. It's so engaging. I'm so into it. I'm so excited for the fifth season because like so much, it's like they call it, they say the fifth book is like the Empire Strikes Back of this series. And I think that's very fair. Um, The books are doing a really interesting job of playing with, not playing with point of view because it's not doing anything particularly mechanically interesting or new, but just for a while each book, you kind of just got a couple of new points of view and then you wouldn't go back to them. Mm-hmm. Um, including, you know, the, there's the kind of the, the main thrust of the story is surrounds the crew of what becomes the ship, the Rosinante, you know, four people that are the crew of that ship. And you kind of only get the main character's perspective, James Holden, most of the time, um, which is my complaint about the first book, because in the show, it just seems like it's a lot more developed. There's a lot more point of view characters. That's because the show kind of went back and filled in what the first book didn't because the first book was, you know, it's the first book in a series. It's trying to be kind of linear and to the point, um, which is actually really wise now uh, as like sort of the story has progressed and expanded. And I really like that for a while you don't get the other shipmates point of views, but then in the fifth book, you only get all their point of views, which is kind of strange. Hmm. And then now in the sixth book, they've started basically, they've kind of just hit the, eject button and you get a ton of different point of views like basically 
characters from older books and like they're all across the solar system and you, you're already familiar with them. So you're kind of even though they only have one or two point of view characters or point of view chapters in this book, you know enough about them that just seeing their glimpse of what's happening and because it's getting a little more the story's getting bigger. You're getting little windows into different areas of it. Uh, and I just really like the world and the sense of like connection. It, it's a little bit heavy on like the, oh, this guy again. Boy, for a galaxy or a solar system of 40 <laughs> billion people, you'd think you wouldn't do him again. But I, they do an okay job with that. But a couple times I'm just like, okay, that's a little convenient. Uh, but it's starting to get to that point where people I said, it's like, oh, it's like the sci-fi Game of Thrones. And I was like, that's probably a, a little bit of higher praise. Like it was never really that as complex or as political. But now it's starting to kind of get there. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just... I really, really recommend it. I just really like it, uh, both the show and the books. And I think the the show is, and you know, it's very, you know, variations a little bit, but it's it's pretty damn close to the story of the books, and in, in a way that's really well done. And uh, the characters are the the actors that play the characters are great. Although apparently the character that play the actor who plays the character Alex, the pilot of the ship, has recently come under some um, accusations of like sexual misconduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said they're doing like a full independent investigation to try and figure out what's going on. So he may no longer be part of the show. I don't know, but, um, the fifth season is filmed. It's already done. Uh, so I guess we'll be part of that season at least. Um, but that's supposed to come out. It was supposed to come out late this year, but I think just COVID stuff pushed the special effects stuff to, to the probably like first quarter, second quarter next, next year. So, um, I just, I want everyone to watch it. I've, con- I've converted a few people, but it's, it's sort of like my, it's my, we are saying earlier, you know, it's a, it's a scary place out there. And for some reason, this series has really been a, a very nice escape, you know, for me, even though it's pretty dark and gritty series, but it's just a, it's, it's a few, it's, it's my happy place right now, even though it's not a happy <laughs> place, especially where I'm in the book right now, it is not a happy place at all. Uh, planet wide genocide is not, not particularly happy, but, uh, yeah. So. You should watch that, Greg. You keep telling you me to watch specifically. It. Should watch. Oh, I know. It just <laughs> seems like a lot. It seems like a lot to take on. It's not even that. It's 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 only ten episode seasons. And how many I, seasons? There's only four out right now. Oof, that's forty episodes. Yeah, but I mean, you have all this extra time, right? It's not like <sighs> you are busy at work or buying a house or have a toddler or anything. Like you know, no, no, none of that stuff. So, um, I. When you can get around to it, I would I really recommend it. Um, it's on my list. So, yeah. Um, to segue into books on that topic, we got a busy fall, Greg. And by we, I mean me. But you're also be excited because in one week from, well, not one week from today, a week and two days from today, one day, whatever, math, uh, we get the next Drew Abercrombie book. Yeah. Trouble with Peace. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Uh, the review I've read, the only review I've read so far, which is a Twitter review, it said, uh, Trouble of Peace is the most Joe Abercrombie book that ever Abercrombie And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it seems like he's he's just kind of, that's what he does. He just <laughs> he just gets more and more himself every time. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, did you, speaking of books, did, I know you were reading some China Mievio. Did you stick with it or uh, did you switch to something yeah. else? Well, I, um, I reread Iron Council. Um and I also, because it was a quick one, I reread Rail C, um, which was not as good as I remembered. Um, I know that Rail C was written uh, as a young adult and a little bit of a satire is not the right word, but like kind of a parody or satire or, you know, send up of 
Moby Dick. Um, and I just feel like there are so many really cool ideas in Rail C that didn't quite get developed um, on a second read, but it's still good. Um, I also started to get back into Gene Wolfe a little bit, um, but uh, it kind of fell off of that when I when I heard about Nosferatu and read that. Um, uh, there is... And now, I mean, most of my reading time is going to go to because this is something I do every year around this time, which is I reread from hell because, you know, August turning into September is when the Ripper murders started. So that's when I like to start rereading from hell because I'm a weirdo. (laughs) Um, But I also have been reading something um, uh, unusual for me, but I found it when I was you know, I was I kind of got to the end of my uh, China Meaville stuff and I was like, I want more of that. So I, I just started Googling um, weird fiction as a genre. And I kept seeing this one author come up, uh, Brian McNaughton, and especially his short story collection, A Throne of Bones, um, which I've been checking out. And it's something uh it is definitely dark fantasy in that it like leans on the dark and dark in kind of a um like heavy metal kind of way if you know what i mean okay um it's definitely pulpy but it's actually also very well written um in its own in in its way um i i don't think that any it, it really has anything all that interesting to say but it is uh a really um creepy and uh kind of uncomfortable and weird read it's so it's a short story collection but all the short stories kind of take place in a like cohesive world and seem to all be kind of referencing similar events but it's not really like it's a shared universe i guess you could call it but each short story is really its own thing um there isn't really a huge underlying plot to any of it but um it takes place in um in this fantasy world that's um the kind of fantasy world i love that never really goes out of its way to explain itself to you Mm. You know, it's almost kind of like, you know, and for, you know, for for normies out there, it's kind of written like the Song of Ice and Fire stuff where it's like um, it's fantasy, but it's all written in universe. Like there's no like omniscient narrator who's explaining to you how anything works. It's just characters talking to each other like, yeah, you know, that family who did that thing, you know, those guys, you know, mm. um, it's kind of like that where it you you're only getting little senses of the world and how it all works and what the religions are. Um, but it, it kind of takes place in a city that's like half necropolis, um, with a population of literal ghouls, um, who are monstrous, but you also spend a lot of time in ghoul society and (laughs) it's weird. Um, it's weird and dark and, and grim, but also kind of, uh, um, it luxuriates in its grim darkness, Mm. um, in a very kind of heavy metal kind of way. Yeah, like a very black metal kind of way. Um, no, I would say more a death metal kind of way. I oh, would okay. say that um, if death metal bands could read, they would read Brian McNaughton. <laughs> that's that's fair. That actually, yeah. sounds very interesting. That sounds something I would probably yeah it's, enjoy. It's it's grisly stuff, and it it's it's it does get pretty queasy at times. But that's kind of the point. 
Yeah. Um, I, I can handle reading Queasy. It's just watching Queasy that it's not so much for me. Yeah. And I will say, um, at least as far as I've gotten into it, there are definitely some problem problematic elements. A lot of this stuff was written in the 70s and 80s, and there is some rough stuff by today's standards. Um, and I do not apologize for that. Yeah. Just saying that right now. That's a big thing right now. Even when, you know, not to bring the uh, other horror thing we referenced, but the Gilmore Girl stuff is just like, boy, any uh, whatever freaking name is. Sherman Palladino. Sherman Palladino. Thank you. Um she didn't really have a very progressive attitude towards gay people uh, or no. making gay jokes. Um, even particularly the character of Michelle, who they, you know, Shay pointed out, they never, ever once reference the fact that, you know, even question the fact that what, what, you know, what his sexuality is in the show. Um, and they constantly reference him, you know, dating women and going on dates with women and blah, 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 even though he's very clearly like a very, very he's, 2D gay stereotype. Absolutely queer coded and in, in the worst ways. Yeah. And then, but then in the Netflix reboot, he just has a husband and it's like, oh, what's the story here? Yeah. I mean, his, his character's done. But anyway, yeah, it's just, that's a very, uh, the interesting through, through thread right now of thinking about how we, I mean, we've always talked about problematic works and problematic creators. It's a right. running theme on our show, but also, you know, some of the stuff right now with a lot of racial things, um, given all the conflict and, and surface conflict and tension right now in, in America and how you handle some of that stuff, even with more recent stuff. Uh, there's been a lot yeah. of interesting thought I mean, I about that. I think it's, I mean, I'm of the point of view that it's important to call it out and to point out like, hey, this has got some rough stuff in it and... Um, but I still think you can enjoy it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm of the mind that, uh, or I'm coming to be that it's okay to enjoy it, to enjoy something whose politics you disagree with. Um, and it's okay to enjoy something that has problematic elements. I think the important part is recognizing where those elements are and having a dialogue with yourself about, are these problematic elements uh, a part of this or the whole thing of this? And just to have the critical eye to be able to understand that, oh, this is a thing that has politics that I do not agree with and be able to see them for what they are and appreciate it anyway, as opposed to pretending it doesn't have politics, which allows its politics to get into your brain. Right. Right. That's, that's a good way to look at it. I think I, I'm with you on that stuff. You know, and obviously the recognition of time and place and context and all these different things. Well, like you said not excusing, but recognizing and right. thinking about right. how if, if you're going to try and especially with so many things being revitalized or rebooted or, you know, remade. It's like, how would how would you extract this? And that helps answer your question, how you framed it about is this is this the thing or is this just a context thing or is this just a byproduct thing or right it's one thing to read like you, if you're going to read lovecraft it's helpful to know that he was a racist right um but it's also helpful to realize that his works were not racist propaganda but they were they 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 are the manifestation of they are one manifestation of racist fears yeah um and to read it like that is you can still appreciate it um, because, no, his works were not racist propaganda. It was not trying to make you to, to turn its readers into racists. Um, it's not the Turner Diaries. But um, uh, but yeah, is it, it are the problematic elements the thing itself or are they, you know, just a part of it? Are they just a, uh, <laughs> you know, a side dish? Right. I've been thinking a lot about this in the um, 
context of Wheel of Time, since that show has been getting some more buzz as casting continues to come out. Shows so many characters, Greg. I don't know why they're casting so many people. Um, it's bonkers to me, but, um, you know, just there's a lot of, uh, Wheel of Time is full of a lot of weird gender politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've read, I've read a number of different views, some of which are like, you know, oh, this is entirely a sexist work to, oh, actually, you know, for fantasy of the time, like, you know, 1990 and then forward, uh, it's actually pretty forward thinking in a lot of ways. And, you know, which is once again, uh, can be viewed as and a, it, well, the answer is it can be both. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious to see how, given the, how to phrase this properly, this is by far the most diverse cast I've seen in a fantasy show or sci-fi show or really many shows I've watched so any far. Any genre show, really. Yeah. Um, uh, any show in general that's not specifically set in that, in a different context, but, um, which is great considering most of the characters in the book are, you know, described mostly as white. Um, or, or assumed to be, right? Or assumed to be, correct. Uh you know, and and overall, you know, you see the comments about, you know, the typical comments you're going to expect to see about that from a nerd community. But, um, or, you know, the regressive sections of a nerd community, I should say. But also a lot of people are like, well, no, well, you know, that's fine. And it makes sense. But, you know, there's a certain message being sent, right? A certain flag oh, yes. in the ground about this casting. Yes. And is that that portrays a certain, um, you know, mentality by the showrunners, showrunner um, Rafe. And the kind of direction we take the show in, which is going to be interesting to see how it plays oh, out. Yeah, in the uh, story, they are, they are definitely planting a flag because I and, and I think one of the clearest signs to me was the way they've been announcing the casting is typically it's a black and white photo of the actor and then a um, you know like a, a a line of text from the book that like describes the character or maybe a quote or something like that. And one of them, it was a female character and the quote specifically mentions her like steely blue eyes. And I think that I, I, I think that the cast was for an African-American woman who definitely does not have blue eyes, but of all the quotes about this character they chose to pull was how she had blue eyes. And I was like, that is, they are coming after regressive nerds with this. Like they're clearly saying like, Hey, we know what we're doing and we know it's going to make you mad. Here it is. And I like that they're doing that. Um, but I think there are other elements of the wheel of time world that might be inherently sexist that it's going to be interesting to come to terms with. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm curious to see, you know, and the nice thing is there's a lot of room a lot of wiggle room, especially if they do some trimming and some cutting and some consolidation. Although they don't seem to be doing that with characters, which is kind of interesting. But because uh, one of the big complaints about Wheel of Time from sort of a more mechanical standpoint is that by, you know, half the way in, three quarters of the way in, you got like the, the you know, the equivalent of the sex witches in this are the Aes Sedai or Aes Sedai, how you pronounce it. And there's just like hundreds of them. And many of them are point of view characters and they're all kind of interested in their way, but there's just so many and it's hard to keep track of them. And it just seems like they've cast like every single one <laughs> in the first season. I'm just like, why are they doing this? Yeah. Maybe he's, that's probably an area where it. you could probably stand to trim and, and combine a little bit, but I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I, I'm getting, I hope that the money is going into it. that needs to go into it. Um, it seems like Amazon doesn't give a shit about money because they put a lot of money in the expanse. They have all of it. They literally own all the money. So they have all the money. And they've certainly not made any less during uh, the current situation. Nope. nope. Uh, they did okay. Yeah. But 
I need to go back one step, Greg, but we're sticking on the high fantasy thing. There's one other book we need to talk about. It's coming out, uh-huh. which you're not going to read, um, which is Rhythm of War, which is the next Stormlight book. comes out in November. I'm sure it does. And I'm sure it's 900 pages long. Oh, it's not going to be 900 pages long, you sweet summer child. It's going to be at least 1,200. Good God. Um, before that, as well as a, a novella, he, likes, he kind of likes to do a no, uh, in the same world a novella between each book. So that's coming out in October. Um, but I wanted to talk about, we talked about that before. We know where we're at there. I'm excited for it. You're not going to read it. It's all good. Um, but I sent you this Kickstarter that happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I find fascinating. Absurd. <laughs> so... One thing Brandon Sanderson does, um, has been doing is he's been making leather bound editions of his books, um, high quality paper, you know, these beautiful leather covers, illustrate full color illustrations. They're, they're truly gorgeous works of art. Um, they're also like 200, $250 a pop, which is a lot for a book. I'll wait to some nerd in like 10 years wants to sell them for like 50 bucks on eBay. Yeah. And I'll <laughs> some, grab them. So <laughs> some, some nerd ha- is having a baby. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he did a, you know, the, unfortunately when they got to way of Kings, which is the first strongly archive book. It, it's the 10th anniversary, which is also kind of crazy. Um, but it's, it's too, it's too big for one. So I didn't do two. And I guess they wanted to do a Kickstarter for this one. So the goal was $250,000. Uh, as of today, September 6, 2020, they have raised $6,788,000 with almost 30,000 backers. That is That's, so much money. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's absurd. And it's, it's bonkers because one of the stretch goals, uh, that I, I think they just had to start inventing new goals to me as the, you know, like the thing just kept getting more and more and more interest. Uh, where one of the goals at the $5,500,000 mark was basically you get to watch live drafts of the novella, like, like they're shared. You get Google to watch dunk. this, this goober type is what they're saying. I don't think it's him typing, but it's like the, the, the review process. It says we will add word docs to the digital package of each draft of the new Stormlight novella with track changes. So you can see the revision process. We'll also include oh, a spreadsheet, that sounds thrilling. A spreadsheet of the beta reader comments. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> but the other one that's really crazy is he brought out, um, and he posted it for free as part of, it was originally a stretch goal, but I guess he's just like, fuck it, I'll just post it. Um, it's called, it's called, uh, what's it called? The Way of Kings Prime. And it's basically a first draft he wrote a long time ago of Way of Kings that's completely like different, non, you know, obviously non-canon and stuff. Sure. But the final stretch goal at $7 million was, doing an audiobook version of that with the people who do like his audiobooks which are pretty well um yeah you've probably listened to and they're pretty good yeah um so yeah we've gotten to the point where they're making an a you know full polished uh professional audiobook version of a non-canon draft of a book i i mean (laughs) i actually like the the idea of you know the first draft you know, I do find that stuff fa- fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like one of the things I would love to see would be like George R. R. Martin's original, you know, um, like plot outline for Song of Ice and Fire. Like where was uh, by the end of the first uh, by the book Game of Thrones, like how he saw things playing out. Like I would be very fascinated to see that. I mean, I think you can connect the dots. Um, but like, I'd be very fascinated to just do the compare and contrast of where this started and where it ended. You know, what did he think the plan was? 
Um, you know, I, I think that's very interesting. Um, but, uh, and then the audiobook that reminds me of the thing where, um, the dark horse did where they made a comic book version of George Lucas's first star Wars draft. Oh, you didn't know about this. I don't think I do know about this. Yeah. It's called the star Wars. And it's based on the original draft of the script and all the art is based on the original um, Chris McQuarrie uh, concept art where it's Luke Starkiller and um, General Obi-Wan Kenobi and Han Solo is a like a space alien. Whoa. Um, How did I not know about this? I don't know, but they did it. Um, I think you can get it on Comixology, actually. Huh. But yeah, they just took the first draft and were like, hey, what if this was it? And like all the weird differences. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely tracks with his sort of very transparent uh, writing process and and the fact that he yeah. talks a lot about. I actually just watching a video he does. He does. He does. He's, he's doing a lot of YouTube live streams um, or Twitch live streams of, of him. He when he's signing all of his books, he, has, he signs like, you know, he offers signed books on the website and he signs them all, but it takes them goddamn hours. Um, and. He, you know, he'll just answer audience questions while he's doing it. Um, and he was like roommates with Ken Jennings. <laughs> and apparently that's what he thinks about is him when he, so someone asked, how do you write characters that are smarter than you are? Which is a good question we have when we play D&D a lot. It's like, how do you play a character that's smarter than you? And there's some mechanical things to do, but, and um, I forget exactly what he said, but basically just like, I think about Ken Jennings a lot and boy, I learned from him. And it's just like. Damn, weird. I uh do you think that Brandon Sanderson might be like pulling a prestige on us where he's really got a twin brother? Ooh. A secret twin brother. Ooh. And that's how all this is working. I mean, I don't know, man. Like the fact that a I mean, probably I mean, not the biggest fantasy author cuz I have to be George R. R. Martin, right? Or maybe J.K. Rowling. I mean, how do you how do you count it though? I right? guess that's true. Like in term but like in terms of like, you know, active readers? <laughs> Probably Sanderson. As far as pages written, goddamn sure it's Sanderson. <laughs> well, right. And like, uh, <laughs> or, you know, it's, 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 I don't know how you, you know, how you quantify it. Pages, total pages sold. It might be Sanderson. I don't know. Anyway, but dude just, you know, gross made $7 million off of a Kickstarter. That's, you know, that's not profit, but you know what I'm saying? Like, right. What? <laughs> I just, right. For stuff. Also, he just made 7 million on Kickstarter for stuff. He already wrote. <laughs> yes, precisely. Like, for, for a book that's 10 years old, basically just putting out the collector's edition of a book he already wrote. Yeah. Like, it's not, you know, this is, this is, it's not one of these things where give me the money and then I'm going to go make the thing. Right. This I is mean, just... yeah, there's a thing to be made, but it's the, the writing the book was the hard part. Yeah. I mean, they've got to buy a lot more leather than they thought they had to, but. Yeah. Poor cows. Um. But anyway, I just that was just a, a novelty that I just needed to discuss because it's bonkers. It's just completely crazy. Um, also shows, I guess, the power of his, you know, his fan base, which I guess is good. Apparently. Uh, so, guess, yeah. So, yeah. But yeah. Um, so like I said, someday I'll, I'll, I'll I have a strict I don't buy books anymore. It's my policy. Um, physical books because I have Kindle and that's what it's for. But um, maybe someday I'll treat myself. They're pretty cool. Um, they are they are beautifully beautifully made. Um. Anyway, I wanted. I don't have any talk about games. You any games to talk about? I'm oh, just, I do have games. Okay, I'm just dumb, and I've exclusively played Apex Legends for like six months. So, <laughs> and I still suck. <laughs> um, I played uh two of the bigger um 
games this season. I played um, uh, Last of Us Part Mm 2, and I played Ghost of Tsushima. Um, The Last of Us Part 2, I'm sure you know, made the internet very upset Mm -hmm. because it had politics in it. And by politics, I mean women. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also um, very good, but also very flawed. Uh, I don't think that I can say anything about The Last of Us 2 better than um, what other smart people have said. um, Other than it's a very good game that tried some very interesting things, but ultimately failed at them. Um, But it is, I believe right now on PS4, the like the most completed game. It holds the record for like most completions of any other game on PS4. Oh, I I never really thought about that be a thing you could track, but that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it relates to um, like achievements and stuff, right? You know, you get a, there's a, you get a, you get an achievement when you, you know, get to the credits basically of, of, uh, you know, and it's the most completed at this stage, I think. Hmm. Um, it's very good. Um, but also, um, the things that make it good have been well discussed and the things that make it bad have nothing to do with narrative decisions that were made or, um, or the fact that it has a woman in it who, a woman who internet guys don't want to bang. Mm-hmm. Um, that has nothing to do with what made the game bad. What made the game bad was what makes a lot of games bad is that it's overindulgent and, um, and that it gets a little too obsessed with itself in how, um, how, uh, how smart it thinks it is. Um, and it goes on too long as a result. Um, but it's very good. Um, and then Ghost of Tsushima is a much more, um, straightforward game it is uh it's a game set in feudal japan that um does a remarkable job of not including any real supernatural elements and i know that sounds dumb but so many games that are set in that period always bring in that magical ninja shit at some point and this game never really does it feels very much like um, like historical fiction. Um, there is one little element of, I mean, you, you need to have a little bit of reality defying stuff just to make a video game make sense. But one of the things this game does this, one of the things this game does really well is that, um, uh, because it tries to, as a thematic element, um, you, you play as a samurai who, has to um, make a lot of compromises in Bushido in order to be basically become like a guerrilla fighter and liberate the island from invading Mongols. Um, so it, it there's a lot in there about like honor and duty and, you know, the samurai's duty to uphold the code versus the duty to protect the people. And when those things come in conflict and all those things. Um, but it also thematically deals a lot with... Um, kind of a spiritual connection to the natural world um, and, you know, and, and that impact on, you know, Japanese philosophy and, and Japanese spirituality. Uh, so one of the ways they build that into the game is that um, you don't get like traditional objective markers the way you do in a lot of open world games of just like there's a big arrow that points you where you're supposed to go. Um, what happens is um, there's subtle effects throughout the whole game of the wind blowing. And, um, you know, you might see it 
blowing through the grass or you'll see it blowing, you know, leaves or flower petals or what have you. And and then you can press a button to, like, make the wind blow harder. But the wind is always blowing in the direction of your next objective. So um, so it's it's this it's this feeling of like the natural world compelling you on your quest. And it also but it just does a beautiful thing where it um, it keeps the screen uncluttered. Right. It doesn't introduce a lot of these kind of alienating gamey moments or elements of like putting health bars on the screen or objective markers on the screen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And the way that it's doing this kind of nice little gameplay thing of just, you know, like, hey, we found a way to include these kind of quality of life help that doesn't like pull you out of the game and remind you you're playing a video game as much as something else might. But also it supports the themes elsewhere in the game of like taking inspiration from nature and, uh, you know, living in harmony with the natural world. Um, So I thought it was really good. Um, And the way that the game deals with these themes of, you know, conflicts of honor and duty and, you play this character who has to like, um, you know, basically become a guerrilla fighter, which means doing a lot of things that violate the samurai honor code in order to liberate the island. Um, but you're kind of uh, put at odds with this other character, your uncle, who is very much this honor bound, you know, old school samurai um, and these two characters and, and the way that the game, you know, illustrates their conflict is very, very powerful. Um, it does a really, really good job. The one place I feel like it kind of falters is that, you know, there's normal kind of combat in the game where you, you know, you're, you, it's, it's video game combat and you're a guy with a samurai sword and smoke bombs and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's also times where you're in a, a duel, right? Where um, the camera gets a little bit more cinematic. It's one-on-one um, and it's a little bit more focused on like really getting the swordplay elements right, dodging at the right time, parrying at the right time, doing that kind of stuff. And I really like that sort of thing, but no video game has really got this right yet. But my suspension of disbelief only works so much when it's just guys hitting each other 20 to 30 times with samurai swords, you know, like it's like, OK, no. And as the game goes on, obviously you're going up against harder enemies who take more and more hits to defeat. But when it's just me and another guy and we're both wearing just like kimonos standing in a ring of flowers, just wailing on each other with these razor sharp swords. I'm like, OK, now I'm now I'm playing a video game. Right. I'm no mm-hmm. longer I'm, I'm getting alienated from that idea of like this is a life or death duel between two master swordsmen to just, OK, we're just whittling each other's health bars down. OK. Right. Um, it's a lightsaber problem. Like, how do you actively put <laughs> make right. anything worth fighting with lightsabers? And and there are games that have gotten close to it. Uh, Sekiro, also on PS4, where it is it is set in a magical a ninja bullshit ninja magic version of Japan. But a lot of the swordplay is about parrying. Right. It's not about hitting each other. It's about parrying to create an opening when you can hit. And usually even boss battles are done with only two or three of those, like, and, you know, I, I parried everything and dodged everything correctly, and now I get my opening and I press the button once and half your health bar goes away. Like, mm. that's pretty close to what I would want from, like, an actual swordplay game. Um, but, and and Ghost of Tsushima does that a little bit, but doesn't doesn't really nail it. it it's, yeah. Interesting. 
I saw, I've seen a lot about both those games. You know, I'm generally pretty positive. Yeah, I saw much of the backlash about Last of Us 2. I, at some point, I'm going to, when probably the new consoles come out, probably go to one of my PS4 owning friends and be like, hey, c- could I borrow your PS4 for like six months and play Last of Us, Last of Us 2, Spider-Man, you know, a couple other <laughs> exclusives that, you know, just don't have access to. Because I think all those games I'd probably really enjoy. Um, Spider-Man's good. Uh, but it, ha- it it suffers from the open world bummer of like, you just get to a point where you're like, ah, I don't care anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Last of Us 2, I really wish they'd make a director's cut because the game really feels about like 20 to 30 percent too long. Mm. Um, and you just get to points in that game where it's just like, OK, all right. I know. what. <laughs> OK, all right. Just all right, let's get to the next part here. Yeah. Um, that would be great. Ditto for Last of Us. I feel like that the, the, the first game. Um, you know, obviously it was revolutionary for good reasons, but like a lot of games, you go back to them and you're like, oh, this has a lot of problems that were solved in subsequent generations of video games that I do not want to have to put up with right now, you know? Yeah. That's why I'd like to do it sooner than later, because you hit a point where games become almost unplayable. Yeah. Especially in, you know, it, it's weird how you can go back and play like retro games, you know, for lack of a better term and, and be fine. But you go back and try and play something that's even three years old. You're like, ew, no. Right. Especially when it was like uh, older, like the first generation of 3D games were like, we hadn't really figured out cameras yet. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I down, I bought Knights of the Republic for like 50 cents on Steam Ooh, once. Yeah. And I was just like, I'm going to find play this. And I was like, nope, <laughs> this game looks yeah. like trash. <laughs> or, and like, or, or it's got weird control schemes because we hadn't really, you know, like now a lot of games, like we've pretty much settled on what the various buttons do. Right. And there's like, Three or four big buckets of that, but otherwise it's like, okay, I get it. You, you know, usually the right triggers are attack, the left triggers are defend or aim. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, square is usually reload, X is usually jump, right? But then you go back to like older games and it's like, no, click in the right stick to jump while you hold the left trigger. Like, what? Yeah. Why? Would we let you remap these controls? No, sir. No, sir. That would have taken someone time to program, and we are not doing that for this reissue of Metal Gear 2. Yes. Um, I I do have a, ga- a slight gaming update. Um, this is a future update, but I am going to be probably constructing a new computer this fall. Uh-huh. Um, I have some money saved up, and you know, I kind of I was actually planning to do it this spring in anticipation of Cyberpunk 2077. But that got delayed, and then coronavirus made all kinds of production issues for parts, so that all went kind of over, off the charts. So I'm like, oh, I'll wait a little bit. Also, I'm like, not convinced my job is super stable, so I was like, maybe I shouldn't do this. Um, but on the same time, I'm, I'm also working from home, you know, exclusively right now, and having a bright, new, shiny computer to do it on, it's pretty attractive. Mm. But uh, I thought you would appreciate that my plan is, since I'm actually doing a full, from the ground up build, which I haven't done in like 10 years, um... I'm putting my old computer on the TV downstairs so then I can like games that are better suited for a controller and sitting back mm, on the couch. I can I just see. do. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that because sometimes, you know, it's just nice to not be, especially now where I'm like, okay, so I worked all day on my computer and now I want to relax with some games in the same chair at the same computer. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I'm not digging this right now. <laughs> a lot of time spent in this room, which is, you know, I'm reasonably uh, suited for that but even i get you know like all right i need to change the scenery a little while yes um but yeah so they just announced a brand new line of video cards which are very very cool um not like a 
I'm not like a, a gear head when it comes to computers. I just, you know, like them when they, when they run games good, but, uh, these are particularly good and they're actually like a fairly reasonable price point for once. So, uh, that's a good sign. I think they're really trying to maybe cut into the next gen a little bit to make computer, you know, it's already been happening, but to make PCs a little more affordable to build or order. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, you can make a pretty gaming computer for like 700 bucks, which isn't that much more than like, you know, a next, next gen console and games are almost never going to be as expensive. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. It's a thing. Um, so I, I had a couple, I wanted to go through some of the things that have been keeping me sane d- during quarantine, kind of mm-hmm. outside of what we've talked about. You cool with that? Sure. All right. So, uh, brief recommendation for, uh, Kenji Alt Lopez's YouTube channel, Kenji's cooking show. If you're not familiar, if you're into cooking at all, I know Greg and I are, um, Kenji is, he was a contributor at Cooks Illustrated and then started, helped start the website Serious Eats. And he has a really awesome cookbook slash, it's not like, I guess it's a cookbook, but uh, it's not just recipes. It's like how to do, yeah how to do science cooking, cooking, science cooking. It's called the Food Lab. It's really great. That's right. That's right. Food lab. Um, but his cooking show has been great because, you know, he's been at home like everybody else and he just puts a GoPro on his head and just cooks and with very little editing. Uh and it just makes me feel really comfortable because he's a, he's a super chill guy, super nice. Um, he's not real pompous and he's just in his own home kitchen. So he's like, ah, oh, I didn't have this. So I use that. And just watching him actually do all the steps as opposed to some, you know, right. don't be wrong. I like the binging with Bobbish and all the fun curated stuff on YouTube. They're all great too. But just seeing him, this professional guy who I really respect just do his thing in his own kitchen and use his own stuff and how often he's going over and washing his hands and drying them. And I was like, oh, that's how I cook. Like it's very, well, uh, you know. It, it makes it feel a little more approachable. Yeah. And, and I think that one of the great things about that is like so often the difference between a beginner cook and a good cook are a lot of the little like finesse elements of, you know, what should these onions look like when they're done? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times when you're reading a recipe, it will just it'll say like, you know, when the onions are just translucent, fuck does that mean guys yeah. right but then when when you actually see something like like his show where it's like it's real time he's taking you through it you see exactly what he sees when he moves on to the next step you know mm-hmm. and, and just the little things of like you said little finesse things of like how he will cut certain things quickly yep. or and you know everyone watches be like how to cook you know how to do how to prepare garlic or but like seeing him do it with a real not manicured bulb of garlic and you know every once in a while you get that like annoying piece of thing that he has to like sit there and try and dig out with the knife and like it happens and his method isn't all that different than mine was and it's like oh okay like i'm not too you feel like you're just so far away from these like professional chefs right it's like mm, right not, not really it's just it's a lot of experience right a lot yeah, of practice and just you know little little things like watching the way they stir something mm-hmm. and then comparing that to the way you stir something and you realize like oh Huh. I never thought, you know, and, and they might not even not even be something they think to explain, but just watching the way they do those little things can can teach you so much. Or you just realize like, oh, I am no different than this guy. He just knows that, you know, he just has that time, those little senses of now is when I need to lower the heat on this. You know? Yep. If yep. I, you know, I need to lower the heat on this now or it's going to get too hot in five minutes. You know, like those little things are the things you pick up on. And and that's really when you start to level up. And also just giving yourself the permission to not to when you realize like, oh, yeah, sometimes like you said, like sometimes they do struggle with that fucking annoying piece of garlic where the last 
bit of paper won't come off. Mm-hmm. I go, okay, that's a, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> when yep. that happens to me, it's not because I'm a bad chef. It's just because they cut it out of every other cooking show when it happens. Exactly. Exactly. You know, some things that make me sad where it's like, you know, he's in like Southern California and he has all these access to all these like amazing ingredients sometimes. And it's just like, oh, that'd be nice. You know, I'm sure I could find some of them. But you know, he was like, oh, the secret to getting a great avocado uh, live in Southern California. I'm like, oh, yep. fuck you, dude. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it, it's good stuff. It, it's kind of it's kind of calming. I've spent a lot of t- like lunchtime just like watching him cook and talk about it i will say er, his early episodes if you have any issues with like motion sickness um mm. i don't know if he got like a stabilizer or something as he went or just got a little bit less uh you know erratic but the first or some of the early episodes are just like he's whipping all around the kitchen with his gopro on and you're like whoa slow down man <laughs> a lot of craziness happening but yeah he's 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 a good guy um enjoyed it that's been sort of a feel-good thing i have two podcast recommendations because mm-hmm. i mean I guess some podcasts are on hold and some are still happening. It's been weird. Like, I mean, we, we haven't put an episode in like three months. No, it's been a minute. Hello Internet has not put episodes since February. Yeah, I was I was starting to wonder, actually, if I was like, did I unsubscribe from those dudes in like one of my mass unsubscribe binges or have they just not done anything? I guess it's just some kind of break. I think Gray was getting a little... I could tell in some last episodes. I'm not sure he was so into it anymore. And, and he's the kind of guy that when he's out of it, he's out of it. So something's going on with him, but I don't want to speculate. <laughs> um, he's put out a lot of videos, though. So that's good. He for has. Him. But I don't I can't put my finger on it. But there's been a shift in the videos that I don't. Anyway, I don't want to speculate. <laughs> uh, I want to dig deeper into that, but maybe not now. I don't know. I, I again, like, I really don't know what's happening, but something's happening. <laughs> um. So the one is the um, Devin Townsend podcast, which uh, he started back in the beginning of this. And his goal was to go through each of his albums of his catalog and talk about it. I think we briefly talked about this maybe yeah. last episode or before or maybe two episodes ago. But he he kind of got to a certain point and then he got really busy doing other stuff. It sounds like including this. Uh, he did a quote unquote virtual concert Saturday, yesterday, Saturday. What day is it? Sunday. Yeah, yesterday. Um, you had to pay to watch it. It was pre-recorded individual musicians on a green screen. It was their request set that was supposed to be played at Bloodstock this year, hmm. but obviously that didn't happen. Um, they still wanted to do it. So unfortunately there's really no way to, I probably am sure it's somewhere on the internet, but there was no way to, no legal way to go in and support him to watch it afterwards, which kind of sucks. But, um, it was a pre-request set, which for him is probably was tough to do. <laughs> Because he doesn't want to play a lot of that shit anymore, but um, he's kind of come in terms with it. Anyway, he started it back up. He just did Alien, the classic Strapping Young Lad album. Um, I still can decide like Alien or City better. It's a constant, constant source of discussion. Um, and then he's just doing right now. He just put out uh, Synchestra and The Hummer and, and a couple other ones. So he wants to get back into it. They are weird. <laughs> he is a fucking space cadet man. Like they're they're long, you know, like like reality alternative long. Um, but he just doesn't even talk about the albums half the time. It's all about just like his state of being and his spiritual center of where he was at. And some of it's really like intense stuff and important, but sometimes I'm just like, yeah, but can you just talk about like, you know, why, what the song's about? <laughs> um, but maybe he just feels that some of these things aren't, aren't worth that for him anymore, but it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a glimpse into a very, very different mind than my own. I'll say, I'll put it that way. Yes, he is a he is a unique guy. Um, there is a lot of uh, there's a lot to unpack for him. 
Yeah. Uh, and within the packing, there's more unpacking and smaller packages and sub packages. And, but it, it is very calming because he has his, his, one of his quarantine projects has been these like guitar improv things that are basically just him messing with pedals, I guess. I would assume pedals and amps. It is, it is largely atmospheric guitar stuff, which is, which is actually not at all bad if you just need like some stuff to like study or get work done to. But, yeah. um, but yeah. To have him just calmly talking over that while it's going on, it's it's kind of soothing in a, in a way. Yes. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, if you want something that's going to make you laugh, I am absolutely hooked on a podcast called Dungeons and Daddies. I you and you have you have got me hooked on this. Are you are you listening to it, Greg? It is it is very good. Oh my gosh! I'm on episode five or six at this point. Oh, you don't even know, know Greg. Is, you don't even know. I know, I know. I'm just getting started, but like, so it, it's the kind of podcast where, like, you know, I need to, I need to be in a situation where, like, I'm, I'm able to like listen to it because it's, it's narrative. Like, I got, mm-hmm. you know, you, it, it's not like other things where it's just like guys talking about the news. Where if like if I miss a couple of minutes, it's okay. But anyway, keep talking. Or, or two, or two guys rambling about the things they like. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um. No. So it's a real play D and D podcast. Uh, they're playing fifth edition. It is a group of, uh, four dudes and a girl, um, who are, I guess they, they all live in LA. They're all writers, uh, variously involved in different LA related trying to make a career things. Um, probably the, the highest claim to fame is, um, the DM, Anthony Birch is he, he was, he's popular for some pre YouTube web series called Hey Ash, what you playing? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not familiar with it. Apparently it was the thing, uh, him and his sister, his sister is actually way more successful than he is. She's a very popular voice actress and also mm-hmm. a regular actress. Now I don't know, that's not a thing I should say. Um, whatever she's in the, um, the, uh, the new, that Apple TV show about making MMO with, uh, Rob McElhinney. Yeah. I've never seen it. I don't think anyone has, but yes. Does anyone even watch Apple TV? I don't think it's a thing, right? So, I mean, they gave it to me for free for a year because, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I bought an Apple thing. So I, uh, but I don't think I've watched a single like Apple TV dedicated show. <laughs> I would like to watch that because I like him a lot and that sounds like a show that's related to my interests, but yeah. Um, anyway, he's, but he's written for Borderlands 2 and League of Legends. They're all writers of various kinds. I think, um, Beth, she's more of like a, I think a more theater oriented person. But, um, anyway, because they are writers, they are very funny and very sharp. And the podcast, which is called Dungeons and Daddies, uh, subtit- subtitle, not a BDSM podcast <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, although sometimes a BDSM podcast, <laughs> um, it's, it's really well produced. Like they do a really good job of including enough table talk that you get to, it's a little bit of D and D stuff. Uh, they do a good job of editing and the, them sort of laughing and talking over each other to a point where it feels natural, but not chaotic, which a lot of real play D&D podcasts can kind of sound like or any podcast where you get more than like two or three people on as we've all experienced in our chaotic Zoom bridal showers and whatever else we've had to attend in mm-hmm. the past six months. Uh, and, but the the story of it is it's four real world dads. They're taking their kids to soccer, a soccer game in the in their minivan. They get sucked into a portal into the Forgotten Realms and the D&D world, and they have to, you know, they come out the other side of their minivan, and their sons are missing, they have to go find them. And each of the dad is is sort of a, a caricature of of a dad, of, yes. of, you know, some kind of dad, right? You've got, like, the sports dad, and, and the hippie dad, like, the hippie, crunchy-munchy dad, and the rock and roll dad, and then whatever Ron is. And the, the sad, the sad uh, stepfather who doesn't, right. Yeah. You know. Um, uh, 
but they each do it just they just do a really nice job all the characters are have their own voice and like i said they're all very very smart it's very funny i mean yes. the the stuff they try and do in the dm they have a really good collaborative storytelling uh perspective where they're like can it be like this and dm's like sure that sounds funny let's do it, it it's very much a comedy first podcast if you're looking for like crunchy D stuff it's not not found here um to the point of sometimes uh, anger for some of the players where it's like, can we just play D&D, guys? Like, I want to stop fucking around. They're like, nope, that's what we're doing. Uh, but the story actually, um, I'm all cut up now. There's like 30-some episodes. They're about, what, an hour and a half? Hour, hour and a half, something like that? Usually about an hour. Hour, yeah. And um, split up into really good stuff. And, and like the production value is really high as you go in the series. They start doing more and more funny little, like, uh, sketches at the beginning. And they have a whole, like big patreon thing which i might actually like dive into is they have like extra podcasts and special ones and they do they're releasing a rap album and it's it's bonkers <laughs> stuff but yeah it's crazy you'll, you'll get there um but uh they it's very very funny and i would highly recommend it even for someone i i would recommend it for someone who's not even interested in dungeons and dragons to be honest because i think yeah, it's that I, funny i think um i think there, there's there's you could definitely look at it as more of just as much a like just an improv fiction podcast about um about these you know uh, improv comedy podcast for the most part about these four normal dads who end up in a fantasy world and yeah like there is some D D stuff but you could also just look at that as like oh that's just the rules of the improv that they're doing right mm-hmm and um, otherwise, it's just like a funny comedy adventure that these guys get into. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I agree. Even if you don't like Dungeons and Dragons, I think it's 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 just really funny. Um, it's five genuinely funny people making up a very funny story as they go along. It happens to have some D&D stuff around the edges. But if you have no idea how D&D works, it's still a lot of fun. Yeah. And also... Um you know, it's there. There seems to be as you move. The first little bit is very, you know, crazy. But I think that they're start. They're starting to become a little bit of an underlying thread of like, there's a point to all of this, a little bit, and something about fatherhood and parenthood and father son relationships and mm-hmm. um gets a little heavy at points. Uh, DM puts some of the characters in some like tough situations where you're just like, ooh, uh, this is a little, a little too real. Uh, for some people, I think, but uh, would highly recommend. Um, very, very good. And the other thing I, one thing I forgot, I did watch the last season of Agents of Shield, and it was not great. That's my review. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't land. It just didn't stick a good ending. I think if they would have ended a season or two ago, they could have confidently said they made a good show. Um, but it was just okay. Had some good parts in it. Had some heartwarming stuff, you know, but just didn't really stick it. So. That's what I've been doing during quarantine and trying to keep myself sane uh, as long as the other stuff we talked about. But so, what about you, Greg? Well, um, I would want to talk about what I've been doing to keep myself sane, but I kind of went the other way with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, that shouldn't be unexpected, I guess. Oh, no. Uh, well, I will say that that one of the things that's been helpful for my sanity is I've started hiking again. Oh, excellent. Um, you used to be really into the outdoor stuff when I first met you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I was, you know, hiking and backpacking was like my deal, um, until I joined a band and then by weekends 
were went to the band um and uh and then i was not in the band anymore but i had a kid and then we moved to maryland and you know when you're living in you know central south central pennsylvania like where i was like i could get in the car and in 15 minutes i could be on the appalachian trail which is great and there was just a lot of like where i lived there were a lot of like you know relatively wild or backcountry type places where you could go and hike um where i live now not so much. There's a lot of like rail trails and stuff, but nowhere where like, and I guess this is, you know, like, I feel like you're not really hiking unless you're in danger of not being found if you get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> um, or at least like, you, you, you know, what? I, I want to be, but, um, but, uh, lately, um, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've found some places in the area where it's a little bit more of a drive and yeah, there are parts of the hike where I can hear 95, I-95, but, um, but it's still wild enough. So I've been getting back into hiking. Um, I've been doing between six and nine miles, uh, you know, a day every weekend. Um, and that's been great. And has been done a world of good for my mental health. Um, do, do you go by yourself or do you take the fam? It's just me. Um, uh, Karen, um, after her back injury last year, um, isn't ready for the miles. And Charlotte being three and a half is not ready for the miles. <laughs> at least how, not for the kind of miles that I want to do. How far are you typically going? Um, yesterday was seven my max was like nine and a half, but that's when I got lost <laughs> because it was my first hike in a while. And I f- forgot that um, you need to like pay attention to your map more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was up at Patapsco Valley State Park, which is a very complex and not terribly well marked trail system. So I got a little lost. Mm. Sometimes those are fun, though. Yeah, also scary, fun. but sometimes fun. fun. It's I mean, it's, it's again where where I'm hiking, there is no trail that is not busy enough where it, even if I, you know, like fell down and got hurt, like five minutes later, there would be somebody there to laugh at me. Um, but <laughs> so that's what I've been doing to stay sane, which is maybe uh, helping 25 percent with the things I've been doing that's going the other way with it, which is mostly uh, just consuming leftist content on podcasts and youtube because um it makes me feel sane to know that there are other people who agree with me that the world is as fucked up as it is and have similar ideas about how it it could be fixed um uh it's reassuring and um uh it's 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 good so i'm gonna shout out a bunch of stuff in that vein that i like and that i hope other people will enjoy too and when i say it's making me insane i just mean that it's um it's not helping me to escape the troubles in the world at all because that's what everybody's talking about um but uh and i but anyway um so on youtube um there's a channel called thought slime that is really good um that is often presented through a lens of uh media criticism um the the guy who does it also has a channel called scaredy cats which is uh a lot of reviews of horror um movies but also other stuff that's it was through his channel that i got recommended nosferatu so um it's really good thought slime and or scaredy cats very good um 
also a a YouTuber named his his channel is just called Jose, which tells you how long he must have been on YouTube to have locked down that channel name. Wow. But um, he does a lot of um, really, really thorough deep dives of like 90s sitcoms. He just did 90 minutes on Married with Children. Oof. Um, I bet that was something. It's it's actually fascinating because he talks a little bit about like the, the context of the time and how it was created and how the show would like develop and mutate and how um, Al Bundy went from a character that you were supposed to laugh at. You're supposed to laugh at his views. Um, but then because of like the momentum of the show, Al became somebody you were supposed to be rooting for. Um, and it's really interesting. He also did like almost two hours on home improvement and huh. how home improvement was, um, at the beginning, uh, kind of a spoof of masculinity, but then kind of became a like reaction and like, um, anti-feminist show. And then there was this conflict between, um, the actress who played the mom, whose name escapes me, who was, you know, becoming more of a producer on the show and wanting to include more feminist messages in the show, like actively in conflict with Tim Allen, who was anti-feminist um, and how that conflict manifested in the show itself and then ultimately in the season finale. Um, really interesting. Um, so that's Jose. Um, also H. Bomber guy who, um, again, a lot of media criticism is kind of the starting point. Um, I think I've talked about him before. He's done a really good series on the uh, Dark Souls and Bloodborne series, just from like a technical, like what makes these games good. Um, but he's also done some really good political reads of other media. And he just did like almost two hours on this like garbage anime show called ruby but it's just like a take for take point for point takedown of like what makes the show bad and it's like amazingly thorough but also um very very good um uh and then there's this kind of uh whole kind of pile of content um some more news even more news and worst year ever some more news is a youtube show even more news is its podcast spinoff and worst year ever is another spinoff specifically about this year. Um, it was supposed to just be about how this, the 2020 election was just going to be, make all of us miserable. But obviously then we had the year we, we had, um, it's the, the news shows are, uh, Cody Johnston and Katie Stoll, who, um, started out at cracked. Um, and, um, when cracked imploded after the Facebook video debacle of whatever year that was, uh, they spun off to do this. Um, and then worst year ever is it's them plus Robert Evans, who also was uh, from Cracked, but he's much more of a um, I don't want to call it mainstream journalist, but he's a like proper journalist, but um, more of a uh, like he works with Bellingcat, uh, which is a um, expressly leftist um, journalism institution. But he uh, but he also has a show called um, Behind the Bastards, which is a really good podcast about the worst people in history, which I recommend. Um, uh, it's it's just very good um, uh, that. And then lastly, um, Matt Christman, who is part of the uh Chapo Trap House crew has a a vlog that he does, uh, let's say four or five times a week um, on Twitch, and then and then it goes to YouTube. Um, it's messy as hell. 
Um, but it's actually really fascinating because you're kind of watching a, um, uh, a, a, a philosopher or a thinker in the more traditional sense, like actively trying to put together a, a, a cohesive theory of like the American political moment and um, the American political spirit. Hmm. Um, and like also as he goes through a kind of personal, spiritual journey. So you're kind of watching in real time as he's building out his theories about, um, you know, American politics and, you know, um, you know, leftist economics, along with his spiritual conceptions of, um, you know, um, the oneness of the human spirit and the demiurge of our uh lived reality. Um, so it's really fascinating from that perspective. And, and you might actually like him because he's also like a, an absolute history nerd and he'll get into like arguments um, in the chat about like civil war generals and, um, you know, uh, you know, who were the, the best revolutionary war generals and who were who were jerks and all that stuff. And it, it's <laughs> but like the way he just rattles this stuff off is, is really is really interesting. Um, so I've really been liking that because I think that it's been really refreshing to see um, a mix of like materialist um, economic philosophy mixed with a genuine like search for a, a spiritual truth that wraps it up. I think is really interesting and actually kind of for me kind of grounding because it allows me to look at the world around me and try to make sense of it in a political perspective but also um but also be able to keep sight of some bigger and and more meaningful things as well um so those are published i on i think they're just through the chapo trap house youtube channel um but they come out a couple times a week and and i find those to be um at worst entertaining and at best like genuinely revelatory wow Interesting. I even if you don't agree with like his conclusions or his ideas, being able to kind of watch it develop in real time is is fascinating. That does sound interesting. I, I actually want to check that out then. I'll have to ask you to send that to me after the show. Uh, mm -hmm. my only political thing I've been watching is just like I, I like watched, you know, like one MSNBC clip once and now my entire YouTube algorithm is just like, here's clips from the news, and I'm like, Great, thanks. Um but I also watched, I think I sent him to you, um, Bo, the fifth column. He's good. Yeah. It's nothing like, it's not anywhere near as probably intense or, um, or as left probably as, uh, a lot of the stuff you're looking at and watching, talk, discussing. And they're, and they're designed to be sort of, his goal is, is to, he's like a, you know, if I say veteran that lives on the Gulf Coast of Florida, take that image in your mind and you probably got it, but not a shithead. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting because he definitely like, he definitely presents as a guy who owns a lot of like Yeti cooler paraphernalia. <laughs> um, but he is like pretty far left. And when I say left, I mean like Marxist left. Um, but what I really think, what I think is really interesting about him is that, um, to see somebody who, who like clearly is influenced by like the same kind of cultural signifiers as um, the American right wing and like, he uses the same voca vocabulary. I know that's a weird way of putting it, but like there it's an interesting perspective of like how you how you might start to persuade American conservatives to leftist thinking because he's coming at it from a like cultural perspective and a like cultural language that 
is already there. So I think he's he. It's really interesting. He's a really interesting case. Yeah, it's kind of um. He he probably he's even sort of described it. His channel is sort of like a trap. Like yes, he's, it definitely is. <laughs> he he you know he's not some like uh nerdy white dude from New York or DC or something just trying to reference all these policy points. His titles are kind of designed to try and you can kind of tell game the yeah a game the YouTube algorithm, but b be really palatable and and just like the kind of things that people in this area usually will watch anyway just like i'm just gonna type this thing in all lower cases and kind of make it half a sentence and just post it yeah and you know it's, it's vlog style but um i mean you know he, he has this perspective he's very like he's very pro gun uh it's a thing but you know he, like you said his perspective and the way he frames it like you said the vernacular he uses the vocabulary the way he frames things is it is a way that he's he said he's trying to get on people's feeds that you know someone that looks like them and they start watching them and the way he kind of starts, he kind of starts to video framing it a certain way. We were kind of like, where's this guy going? And then like, yeah. then he drops the, you know, anti-Trump or whatever message he's trying to promote at the time. And he posts like pff, two, three times a day sometimes. Yeah, he's, he's pretty prolific. It's, it's an interesting, it, it's, it's a good approach because it, it, it's like, it kind of starts with a conservative concern and then walks you to why Marx is the answer, as opposed to a lot of other places which start with, well, of course, we've all read all three volumes of Capital. That's why <laughs> this is bad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas he tries to and, and he clearly has a strategy like and, and that's probably what's necessary. Um, but yeah. I, I, I like his approach. I don't watch too much of him because I've kind of like. Yeah, it's like baby's first. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, less <laughs> like, stuff. Okay, but. I get you. But as a like as a rhetorical strategy, it, it, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and also just nice for a quick digestible like, you know, you got five yeah. minutes and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll watch what he's got to say about this issue today. And he said the framing sometimes is a way I don't always think about framing it to others. Um, <laughs> I had a I had a moment. I thought you enjoyed this, Greg. I was. You know, we were up at this campsite with my parents speaking up in like deep central Pennsylvania. Um, Coburn is the the town, I guess. Not really a town. It's a road. Um, but anyway, I, we met some of my parents I have a permanent site up there and they have friends that all have, you know, it's this big community of people who mostly retired or whatever have permanent campsites up there. And you can imagine the kind of people who, you know, maybe generally have um, a permanent campsite in central Pennsylvania. Hmm. Um a lot of, you know, a lot of Trump signs, a lot of, not, not too many in the campsite itself, but, um, might not even be a lot actually. But anyway, I met, met a couple friends of theirs. They're very nice people, but the one guy I was talking to there, someone brought up some joke about weed or something. And they're talking about, uh, there's a big effort in Pennsylvania right now, um, by, a, there's been some efforts, but a very big push right now from Governor Tom Wolf to, you know, decriminalize and, and legalize, uh, recreational marijuana. Part of it as a, I think, you know, it's been sort of something he's wanting to do, but, uh, kind of capitalizing on COVID concerns and basically pitching it as a COVID, uh, a plan to make some, make some money, uh, to help offset the economic destruction that COVID's led in the state. Um, and <laughs> the one guy said, yeah. And the, you know, and, and for those unaware who's in Nolan, Pennsylvania, for some reason, governor Wolf has become this like icon of, you know, liberal government, like fascism because of, Pennsylvania's fairly aggressive response to COVID uh, and overall success at response to COVID. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, a lot of, you see a lot of signs about Fuhrer Wolf and stuff. It's really strange. But um, 
anyway, he was like, yeah, he's, he's trying to, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's moving to this cause he wants, it's the only way he's going to get reelected again. I'm like, hold up. So you're saying that like him enacting a wildly popular policy is like bad. Like, cause that's what you're saying is that it's something that everyone wants to do, which is he's going to run on it to get elected. But what's the, what's the point here? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Oh, a politician. They're just doing this to get reelected. It's like, yeah, that's what politicians want. Yeah. Is to get reelected. Like, that's the whole point here, man. It's like saying that's like saying, like, McDonald's is only doing this to make money. It's like, yeah. What do you think the point of McDonald's is? But even more so that, like, that it's this, like, it's such a crazy idea, but that everyone wants it. You know what I mean? That, like, right, it's, right. it's it's overwhelmingly popular and supported, which is why it's going to do it. It's like, oh, so you mean, like, doing, like, you know, r- running on a platform that, like, the majority of the population want? Yeah. I mean, granted, that's kind of an absurd uh, realization for um, many Americans, actually not many Americans, a minority of Americans who for some reason are electing all the officials in this country. But anyway, we're going to get on that rabbit hole, but uh, otherwise we're going to assume be on the list of, of leftist uh, media criticism. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just, I mean, it's, it, it's been keeping me sane in so much that it, it, it's, it's helping me to make sense of the world and not feel, not feel alone in my, uh, rage and bafflement um at the state of things yeah it's tough times out there greg i you know i hope everyone's real rough i hope everyone's taking care of themselves and taking care of others best they can so some dark days right now yeah truly truly it's the worst it's ever been and i think it's gonna get at least one click worse before we're out of it out of it yeah i don't i don't think you're wrong about that I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, at least when I'm thinking clearly, I'm not, I'm not one of those get ready for the civil war people, but, uh, I think we're going to get a lot closer than anyone is comfortable with soon. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely, I'm, I would consider myself an anti-alarmist when it comes to those sort of things. I remember shortly after Trump was elected, even before I got in an argument with some people on Facebook about like, oh, you know, there's going to be a, this. The only outcome is a is a true civil war. I'm like, all right, listen, like a civil like, you know, do you, you don't understand, like, you know, historically speaking, like what it takes to make an actual civil war happen. Granted, there's a lot of boxes being checked right now, but for but it's in it's a different context, right? Well, like you can take things and be like, well, all these things happened before this civil war. It's like, yes, but you know, we are in a the twenty first century in which a first world country, for lack of a better term, a developed country hasn't like there hasn't been like a real civil war in like a developed country yet, and the mechanics of which are really obtuse. Now, granted, having like reading some of the things you see in the news about, you know, people actively shooting each other for like purely political reasons is like pretty pretty bad like um you know that's not that that's on the that's on the path to it but but yeah i don't know it's a it's a weird i do think there's it's gonna get gonna get worse before it gets better i so there's two kind of theories that i've that i'm entertaining one is and, and both these are references to some of the folks i just talked about but uh one is robert evans's theory uh, as he put forward in his, I guess you could call it a, a podcast. It's kind of like a podcast miniseries called, uh, it could happen here, which is his speculation, um, on how a, an American civil war could break out. And his prediction is that 
uh, and he put this out like two years ago. So it's, it's but the, the lead up to it is a lot like everything we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. But the end result is not a civil war like we're used to thinking about, like the first American Civil War. It would be more like localized breakdowns of government authority mm. where you where it's it where, for example, like there would be entire area. There would be like big sections of Iowa that were under militia control. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you would have pockets of isolated like you know, um, street level violence and domestic terrorism and breakdowns of control, but it wouldn't be like a full scale battle the way we're used to seeing. Um, he thinks that is, um, all we're already on the way to that. Um, and then there's Matt Crispin's theory, uh, which is that we will never have anything like that because as Americans, we are currently far too atomized and, um, disconnected from one another that you would never really see two sides coalesce in any way that could be organized because we were all so disconnected from each other because of uh, Twitter and Facebook, basically, that any sense of community spirit has has completely dissolved and there aren't the institutions and mechanisms that could organize people to any kind of like large scale action, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm also partial to that idea that, um, that for example, like you could argue the right could be more organized than the left because they have the advantages of things like churches that can help organize action. Um, but how long would it be before the, uh, Q honors, um, got into a fight with the proud boys? Right. Right. Um, and while a lot of people like there, there, yeah, there are some lunatics out there, but like how many people in America right now believe in anything enough to die for it? That's my biggest thing. It, and that's the biggest argument I put forward when I was discussing this in, the, in this context was like there's a big difference between and I'm not trying to like disparage anyone's going through right now in any context or what they're feeling, but like it is really bad. And especially for large segments of the population that I, you know, that I don't have a lot of contact with. Um, unfortunately, you know, like for black, for black people in America right now, like shit's bad. And that's why you are seeing massive unrest and protests and rioting and, and these pressure valves, right. And these mechanisms for change. But for, like you said, any large scale organization, I, I think we will see more of the sort of small scale conflict for not just like riots or whatever you want to call them you know i think we'll see like some actual organized conflict between some small groups of people organized groups of people before this is all out Mm -hmm. we're already seeing the beginnings of that you know um but i don't think i think that's i think so that's why i think that's subscribed to the second idea more is that you know there's some people but not enough people and the other side of it is you need to have governments to make a real civil war you need to have pieces of the government break apart yes and that is possible but also i just i don't see the american system is very undemocratic right now um i mean has been but is particularly in a, in a bad strait right now but you know i don't it seems like thus far there's been enough pressure valves or or you know enough uh stop gaps to sort of prevent some of anything particularly like anything getting that point you know we've had in instances of it um you know trump calling in the federal troops in different places and these sort of things but 
Right, but those are relatively small, right. and 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 in comparison to the rest of the the American apparatus, relatively weak. Right, like these are border patrol that you know border patrol and you know like Bureau of Prisons people that he that he can activate. Right, Homeland Security people that right you know, relatively um, small, relatively weak, um, and you also have so far strong and effective resistance to that from you know governors and mayors um and right and, and particularly non mili- like non militarized resistance to that right right like there's a there's a legal civil war and a civic civil war happening in our country right now like within, i've heard the term the cold civil war yeah i think that's for sure happening but you know for like gregory what would what would make you as a person who's probably one of the more extreme you know, politically in this country, as far on the left, may not super extreme. You know what I'm saying? You I'm pretty far left. <laughs> yeah. You have polarized views, I guess we'll put it that way. Yes. What's going to make you go out tomorrow, buy a gun and start shooting people? Exactly. That's the thing is I don't there. There is there are so far there is nothing on the on the table politically in America that to me is worth killing and dying for. Um, and I don't, and I think that most people like me are on that page. Yeah. And there, there definitely are some people out there who are ready to kill for some political goal, but those people are, uh, they are not organized and they are not rallied around one particular goal, right? Like, yeah. Are there people out there who are willing to kill because they think that there's a secret cabal of, um, you know, uh, pedophile cannibals running the show in concert with the lizard people like yeah there are those people but they are not organized with the people who um you know with the sovereign citizens Mm -hmm. who are not organized with the uh with the proud boys and the and the white nationalists um they all want different things Arguably, in the American Civil War, it was an issue of we all want to have slaves and y'all don't want us to. Let's fight. Right. Yeah. You've got you you do have groups of crazies and you've always had groups of crazies. Um, but all those crazies want different things. Right. Um, and, and you also need to have in the in the version, you know, in our Civil War, but in most of wars, like you had states that were much stronger entities than they yes. are now breaking away. And making a new government, right? Civil wars have never been started by a couple of cra- – I mean, well, I guess – I'm sure there's exceptions. But you know, generally speaking, it is a piece of a government or government's break and then people who support that then do that, right? Like if Maryland and D.C. and Pennsylvania broke away from the United States and said, okay, Greg, we need you to come defend this new liberal utopia we've made, like maybe that would change your tune. But you're not going – there's not enough yeah, – there's not enough – organization or desire whatever you want to call it um is what i'm looking of thinking of would be like commitment to the cause right to go out and start doing that and it's not going to be done by even a small group or even multiple groups that coalesce in that that's just not how i mean it's historically from my examples i can think of top my head it's like i don't think that's how these things go and there and and in the original american civil war um there were like genuine material concerns right like um if for the for the south if they take our take our slaves away our entire economy collapses yes um in the north if the south secedes 
our entire economy collapses. Right. Um, it's, you know, like those are real concerns. Whereas the truth is, and this is something Chrisman talks about a lot, and I, I agree with him, is that American politics are like 90% symbolic. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's, I mean, nobody, there are not a lot of, there are not nearly enough people who are going to, you know, um, you know, who are going to like go and put their lives at risk, um, because of the Confederate flag coming down. And there are also similarly not a lot of people who are going to put their lives at risk to bring that thing down. You right. know, the issues at stake in America um, in large part are symbolic. And that's just not something people are willing to kill and die for. Now, I would argue that the issue of uh, police violence is not symbolic. That is a material issue that mm-hmm. needs to be resolved. Um, uh, but, um, I, I think that at the end of the day, that that will be resolved through peaceful means because there is a, a power structure in place that allows police departments to be controlled. If we do not have leaders today who are willing to control those police departments, those leaders can and will be replaced. It's not an issue of if, it's an issue of when. Um, we would all prefer to see it happen much faster than it's currently happening, but, there is there is a political solution to that problem. Right. Um, there was by the time we got to uh, the truth is that there is there was no real political solution to the problem of slavery. Right. right. Like once the slaves go away, the South's economy collapses um, unless you're willing to like phase them out over 100 years. Um, it's just not going to work. You know, it, I bet, I mean, some of those proposals, not a hundred years, but we're on the table, you know, these slow right. phased out places, but you know, they weren't just couldn't, couldn't fathom it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I think that, like, I think, I think the point where you say about being largely symbolic is really important. It's also really sad in some ways because there's really no real policy changes that are like on the table. Um, but I, I think that, I mean, there is some, but it's, it's kind of min- minimalist to say that, but I, I, yeah, I do think we will see more violence. I do think we'll see more organized violence, unfortunately. We will, but I think it's going to look a lot more like gang violence yeah. than civil war. Yeah. It, it, it's going to look like, um, yeah, basically yeah, gang violence because we, the you know, when it's people of color, we call them gangs. When it's white people, we call them militias. For some reason. That's that's what's going to that. But that's what we're talking about here. The Proud Boys are a gang. The three percenters are a gang like, you know, um, and if these if these guys get into scuffles with what they perceive as other gangs, it's going to look to us like gang warfare. It, mm-hmm. It's not going to look like um, it, it's not going to look like civil war because, again, there's no the government isn't behind it. Right. And also there's you really have to go out of your way to cause that conflict because right. our population is so segregated and atomized to that point like you know what the most recent thing with that kid that killed those people like they drove in from like really far away to like get in the way and do that shit you know Mm -hmm. and only under that context of like the chaotic situation and it was portland right no that was wisconsin wisconsin sorry thank you um only in the context of that chaotic situation were they able to that was able to happen and i will say that i think that and Gods, please don't let this be the situation where I put every foot of this fucking world in my mouth. But I think the worst part of COVID is past. Uh, I shouldn't say that out loud, but hypothetic, you know, as far as like, you know, death toll and economic effect, immediate economic distress, at least in America. 
it's hard to see how it takes a turn for the worse. Right. Given where we were and where we've come and, and given how we've had to drag this fucking country tooth and nail to even make the slow progress we have right. in some areas. Like, I don't see it reverting to a war yeah, situation. I think unless- maybe the way to say it is not that it's not that the worst is behind us, but it it can only get better from here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the overall trend line should I mean, should overall get better. Um please for the love of god um but if things would have gotten even worse like if there would have been true true i mean people suffered a great deal in this don't like belittle that at all but if there had been true supply chain breakdowns where people were not able to get food Mm -hmm. if there were a supply chain breakdown where you know banks weren't able to get currency or you know these things happen where like the mechanisms our society stopped working completely Mm-hmm. Then I think that could have been those are where situations where catalysts for like dramatic civil unrest or civil war can occur at a more grassroots level as opposed to coming from like a there's kind of like a bottom up civil unrest and like top down civil, you know, disunion, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that if things could have gotten would have gotten a lot worse there, you would have seen it. But I don't think we're going to get to that point now just because I think that enough places are doing enough things that. It's not going to get there. And I think, honestly, I think that one of the big, big additional bulwarks against that just happened over this weekend, which is I think at this point, the idea that um, uh, Trump would have the support of the military for anything other than a completely by the books thing is out the window. Oh, yeah. I think I, I, I mean, there was a lingering question and it, it usually came up around around uh, the question of, you know, um, what if he doesn't leave office? And um, there are really two two answers to that question. One is, well, it depends if he goes the uh, the Supreme Court route or if he you know what. But really what it comes down to at the end of the day is who does the military recognize as the new president? That's what it would really come down to um, if push comes to shove. And um, and there was an open question of like, well, who would the military support, you know? Um, and there were there were reasonable arguments that like, look, you know, those military guys are institutionalists and they, you know, and, and you know, they're very wrapped up in the idea of civilian command and, you know, they're not going to question the Supreme Court and blah, 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 blah. Um, and then there's other people saying like, yeah, but the military, the, all those guys hate Trump. They see him as blah, blah, blah. And, but now I feel like if push comes to shove, he has whatever, whatever chance he had to like get them to do things that were maybe off a little bit off the books or a little bit in a gray area. Gone, gone. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's then that's something that's been very that's been, it's weird that it's not good. I'm not saying it's good, but one of the things that have been one of the weirdly stabilizing forces in the late 20th century and early 21st century in countries in chaotic political transitions has been the military. Hmm. Like you think about Egypt, think about other places in the Middle East, um, trying to think, you know, in some places in Africa, like uh, there's been a lot of like the military as sort of a, which is, it's not good because it's very easily goes the other direction, but you know, this sort of like objective arbiter, you know, institutionalist sort of perspective of just like, you know, we're going to follow the rules and you aren't following the rules and we're going to quietly escort you out of this building. And, you know, maybe have to fight some supporters or whatever, but like, this is what we're doing and you've done your, you know, you've done enough move on, sir. Um, which is like I said, not good, but I think that the U S military very much, especially just given everything we know about 
Trump and his interaction with basically every person he's worked with ever. I also think that half of his cabinet's going to be happy to have him not his cabinet, but like half the people he works with who who aren't like haven't been appointed in the past two weeks are going to mm. be pretty happy to be like, yeah, I'm I'm out of here, and like you're out of here because <laughs> this is a fucking nightmare. Yeah, I think I mean, so I think that you don't have a full scale American Civil War without some uh, elements of the military taking the side of and let's assume that our hypothetical civil war is 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 MAGAs versus uh, non MAGAs. <laughs> You've got to have some proportion of the of the military chain of command taking taking side with the MAGAs. And right. I don't see that happening. Yeah, not I mean. And I say after this weekend, I would imagine that most of the military leadership knew that this is who this guy is. Sure. Right. But now I think we all know which way the cookie would crumble um, at, at this point. Now, now the rest of us know and can breathe a little bit easier that he has absolutely no capital with them. I have a question. And this is off topic. And it's not off topic, but it's just I was away with very little service this weekend. So I saw the article and stuff, but I didn't really see a lot of like, what's been the sort of conservative response? Cause I haven't seen anything really. And um, so far it has been the, um, it's just fake news. Move on kind of thing. Basically. Okay. Oh, the anonymous sources. It's all a bunch of, it, it, this is all, this is all made up. You know, you can't believe these people. They're, they're just making it up. Nobody likes the troops more than me. Um, even though, um, Fox News's correspondent like corroborated it, confirmed <laughs> it, and now they're all trying. Now Fox is trying desperately to pretend she didn't, um, <laughs> even though she's like, "Yeah, no, I did." <laughs> um, okay. It's been. I mean, that's been the 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 White House's response. I don't. So far, I haven't heard anybody in like the punditry come up to like defend it. But I mean, they really only have one option, which is um, it didn't happen. Which is to say, it didn't happen. But that's going to be tough given that everything that's in there, just like it all sounds like just variations on what we've already heard him say in public. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all completely believable. And right. It all just sounds like, you know, you'd be surprised if it was the other way around. You know, it, yeah. it's it's like if we, um, uh, you know, if you found out that um, uh, I'm struggling for a, for an analogy here, but um if you found out in his personal life, Guy Fieri was a vegan, you'd be like, what? No, <laughs> but um, great, great it, analogy. I like that one. <laughs> this is this is the sort of thing of like, you know, if you if you read a tell all expose that said like, yeah, Guy Fieri's got diabetes and, and you know, probably heart disease. But yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, that tracks based on what I what I know about his public self. It's, it's the same thing with this with this Trump military stuff. I had, another, like, I had another I had another thought of something that could spark not a full scale civil war, but like a very like I, I would be very nervous would be like a successful assassination attempt. Um, That would uh, that would be scary for me. I feel like that could make some once again, I don't think it would explode into a full, you know, dysfunctioning of our, you know, society and everything. But like, I think there'd be a level of unrest and, and violence around that that would be not matched by something we'll see otherwise. Oh, I mean, I think you, 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 you would, uh, you would see a lot of targeted street level violence, um, uh, against perceived liberals. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Depending, especially depending on who, who did it right. And how, like how everything, but I was thinking about that more recently and just, cause people wasn't asked like, how's no one, you know, sometimes in jest or whatever, which isn't a great thing to jest about, but, but you know, uh, well, uh, well, there haven't been, well, 
I think that one of the things is that since Reagan, it's just gotten a lot harder to get cl- uh, close enough to an attempt. Mm-hmm. Not not when I say close enough, I don't mean like physically close enough. Like um, it's gotten a lot harder to get to the point where you can even fuck it up. Right. They've gotten better at at tracking people. And uh, so that's part of it. And another part of it is that, again, this goes to the Crispin theory. Nobody cares enough to actually try. Yeah. Um, and I also think that um, part of this is also that uh, liberals tend to um, uh, tend to be reluctant about violence for political purposes. Yeah, well, and I also think that to your point about no one cares enough, I think that on a left sort of perspective, anyone who cares enough is going to be probably, uh, I'm not say smart enough, but like well read enough or researched enough to realize that like that's probably a really fucking bad idea. Well, yeah. And not, not and just, not just like for themselves, but just like this is not the correct political move to make to make the goals I want to accomplish. Right. Is that there will probably this, this, you know, Nothing, nothing would ensure a Republican victory better than a Trump assassination. Um, but right. I think, I think a big part of it is the crazies get caught earlier and, um, crazies get their, get their, are having their, um, are, are having their, uh, their energy cha- channeled a different way. You know, a lot, a lot of liberal crazies have, are having their, uh, their, uh, crazy channeled into Russia conspiracies and the right is having it channeled into QAnon, which is resulting in violence. But, um, yeah. Uh, and also I just think that, you know, our, our society as a whole and the general trend line for world violence is like down, like it just, it is, it has been going down for decades and is continuing to go down. It's just like, people just aren't as violent. They don't resort to violent means in general. And, and honestly, like, I mean, you know, one of the reasons Kennedy got shot is because we were dumb enough to think that riding through a public square in an open top car was a reasonable thing for a president to do. Right. <laughs> um, we, you know, and, well, and now the whole we government conspiracy thing, you know, huh? And the whole government conspiracy thing. Oh, well, we, it was it was it was George H.W. Bush. who fired the shot. We all know that. Right. <laughs> um, is, wait, is that a real theory? No, oh, that's that's absolutely a real theory. Oh God damn um, it! I'm partial to the theory that uh, um, that Oswald actually did fire, um, but missed. Um, but then one of the Secret Service agents in the car um, was startled and accidentally discharged. <laughs> there's a, there's a book about it. Um, oh my gosh! And and there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence that points to this, and um, you know that that they they that you know that. Um, that it was a that it was a, a really a horrible accident in re, in the result to the sound of Oswald's gunshot, and that that explains why a lot of the trajectories don't make sense. But anyway, uh, no, we got smarter about that kind of stuff, and then there was the attempt on Reagan, and then we got smarter about like who you you know like just se- operational security for the president that's going to pre- present prevent a lot of these things from happening. And the kind of person who um, who decides they want to kill the president uh, is like they're they're not smart and stable enough to come up with a sophisticated enough plan to get around the security precautions we put in place today. You right. Know? Right. If you're smart enough to do it, you're smart enough to know it's not a good idea. <laughs> right. If you're smart enough to solve the the, the internecine puzzle of, of how you assassinate the president in 2020, you're yeah, exactly. You're you're yeah. Like you said, you know, you know enough to know it's not a bad idea. 
Speaking of, we're both on a list now. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. I mean, you're definitely on a list already, but. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's the thing. I don't think, honestly, I do not. I'm not as worried because I do not think that the current government is. Uh, I think they are far too lazy and disinterested to try and uh, make lists of people who, you know, uh, watch Antifa videos on YouTube. That seems like a lot of work for these guys. <laughs> they don't and they don't seem they don't seem like a hard working bunch to me. I think you're probably right about that. Well, certain savings of it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we went down a rabbit hole. Yeah, it's fine. Maybe we should it, maybe we should cut this you, out and have it be like a set a special like Greg and Andrew talk about the Civil War, but not look, the one you you're thinking of. <laughs> it's impossible. We how can this is evidence of 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 the nature of our world now, man. Like you try to start out talking about the new Dune movie that might be coming out, but how can you talk about any of this stuff without every conversation ending up here? Uh, it's for sure. I mean, I was trying to think of ways to like, like how do we tie this in? And like, I mean, I will say expanse, man, a lot of, a lot of underlying themes here. Just yeah. A lot but of you see song. what I'm saying? Like, but, it's just, it's yeah, impossible. No, it's, it's becoming because it's the weird paradox right now like you said it like american politics is largely symbolic and performative yet at the same time the at least in the circles that i run in which are you know is a specific niche of america you know geographical and demographical and whatever but it seems like you know the whole oh it's not polite to talk about politics it's just impossible because the things that we're talking about are no longer politics it's it's morality it's it's ethics it's our daily lives, right? Well, and you know, every, which is t- all the case, always the case, technically, I guess, but just particularly pervasive and, and invasive right now. I, I mean, think about think about the 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 other major political event of our lifetimes, nine eleven. Um, the event itself was obviously shocking, and you couldn't not talk about it, right? Um, and the initial response, war in Afghanistan, like we were all pretty much on board with the idea of like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Like, we should probably go after the guys who did this. Mm-hmm. Whether or not, in hindsight, that was the best use of our efforts, different story. But, so there really wasn't much to talk about there. Um, and then you got to the point where we were at war in Iraq, and there definitely was something to talk about, but you could avoid it, right? There were plenty of other things to talk about, because this was something that was happening overseas, and we could to a certain extent, put it in the back of our minds. But here, this thing, like, um, you can't talk about anything without having to talk about COVID, too. Like, we can't talk about movies without talking about, well, we're probably not going to see many movies this year. And, and then there's going to be like, like next year and the year after are going to suck, too, because all the movies that aren't getting made right now that we would be watching next summer and the summer after. So like, you can't. And then, OK, so now we have to talk about covid because it's impacting everything we do. Every time you step out of your outside of your house, you're reminded of it. Every time you go to the grocery store, you're reminded of it. Um, and every time you're reminded of it, you're reminded of how the fact that we are in it right now was the result of political decisions that were obviously made with political intent that were not. And you can't even say like, oh, we're in this state because, you know, hey, um, mistakes were made, but everybody was doing their best to keep everybody safe. Because you can't say that. 
that, that that's manifestly untrue. We are in this state now because our current president, A, too lazy and disinterested to, to do anything about it. B, convinced that doing anything about it would make him look bad. Uh, and C, deciding to use it as a way to somehow blame Democratic governors and mayors for the state of the world so that he can try again to be the opposition insurgent candidate <laughs> because he doesn't know how to run as an incumbent. Like, this is obvious. So you can't ignore that stuff. Like, because the reason we don't have movies right now is because of our politics, because of our president and his followers. Right. In power and not in power. The reason we like the reason we can't go to the comic book store is because of this. The reason we can't have in-person D&D games is because of this. So you can't ignore it. It's not some war that's happening somewhere else. It's the reason your life is fucked up right now. It's um. so how is it not a part of things? No, it's a good point. I mean, I, I think the best example I can think of is, you know, we have like a my office. We have about maybe 10, 15 people in it and everyone but management. We all have like a Facebook messenger chat where we just, you know, basically bitch about work most of the time. But also during this time of this, you know, it's kind of our way where we like keep up with each other and share things and whatever. But like it's points where it's gotten deeply political. And, you know, once again, like in polite civil society in the workplace, talk about politics is not generally something you do. Maybe you have a, a co-conspirator that you talk about with behind closed doors or quietly in the corner or something. Like, oh, yeah, did you see the news today? Oh, yeah. But you don't really... But no, just everyone and and everybody, different ages and groups or whatever, all on the same page, just all agreeing about it. it it's it's diff, definitely different and well interesting. And it, it is it is different in a lot of ways because like and I go back to, again, like the Iraq war, because a lot of that argument, you know, ended up boiling down to like, how will history judge this? And at the time, nobody knew. Right. Um Nobody knew for sure whether those WMDs were out there. Nobody knew for sure if Iraq would be better without Saddam Hussein. There were theories on all sides, but nobody really knew. And it was all kind of academic because it didn't really impact us in any material way. Mm -hmm. um, but now it's like we all agree things are fucked up and we all agree things could be better, right? I wouldn't say all, but yes. Well, right. Well, but I mean, anybody who can look at like other countries who have pretty much gone back to normal now, like, you know, countries like Italy who were so much worse than us, but now are like just like living their lives. and We're not, you know, yeah. um, the fact that it's, you know, when it when it's like, oh, yeah, this movie is going to open, but not in the U.S. Right. Um, like um, the, the, the like the trailers for Tenet now are saying like open in theaters that are safe or something like that. Oof. Right. <laughs> Which is like so bizarre, but like you can't it's become impossible to ignore the situation. And it's and it's almost impossible to uh, to put on the blinders and say, this is the best we could do, mm -hmm. you know, and and put on the blinders and say, well, you know, we really thought we were doing the right thing. Um, it's you can't ignore it and you can't like you can't sit back and say, well, you know, like, here's the other thing. Like, you could say, look, we took a different approach. We took an approach that minimize that the goal was to minimize lockdowns to keep the economy going. Right. Um, that that was the goal. 
And we knew, and it was a hard decision, but we knew that we were going to have to take, accept a higher death toll in exchange for less economic impact. Sure. Right? The Sweden model, if you will. Right. You could say that that's what we tried to do. Um, but here's the thing. If that was your goal, like if that was actually your plan, it wasn't. But let's say it was. You still fucked that up because it's the highest number of unemployed in history. Like, oops. Yeah. Um, so what is the argument here? And there, you can't abstract this out to like philosophical differences between like classical liberalism versus, you know, neoconservatism, you know, and well, I just believe that the scope of government should be X, Y, Z. It's like, no, man, like, look, here it all is. It's all real and manifest here before you. Yeah, it's just like, you know, the, the Iraq war is a good example but more, you know, like the, on the other side of it, you've got, like you said, like economic theories, right? Like, yeah, you could argue that, you know, a lot of people could argue and probably correctly that like, you know, the policies of the Reagan era resulted in XYZ negative economic, you know, social economic impact in the United States for the next 30 years. But it's also just one academic argument, right? And there's a bunch of other ones out there and no one's actually, you know, no average person is not seeing that and connecting those two things together, which is why it's so hard to run on economic platforms that, you know, to begin with. But it's, it's so detached, right? You said this is so, it's so part of, I have to share this terrible, ugh, my, I hope that you hadn't had experience anything like this. I'm sure it's been hard for you as a parent, but one of my coworkers, her son's like four and, you know, she's like, I had a heartbreaking day where he came, he was upset in the evening. And I said, why, you know, I asked him, why are you upset? And he said, I'm scared. And he's like, what are you scared about? And he's like, I don't want to get COVID. I don't want to die. I'm scared. I'm going to die. And it was just like, fuck man, like that. And then, you know, for a parent, right. Like you can connect the instant dots that like this didn't have to be this way. Right. Right. And right. Like, it's enough to make you. But the scary part for me is, Greg, is that the fact that still the most blatant thing. And this is where you know, I said, I put my foot in my mouth in that COVID episode we did way back when about like, well, you know, surely Trumpers can't just look at all this and, and deny it. It's like still one third of this country is like, now nah, we're good. Everything's fine. It's just they, like, what? They're like, saying that now, but I, it's so like discouraging. It actually, that's the thing that upsets me. I mean, everything is sad in the world, but the fact that there is like one third of this country that truly, truly is just like, sees there's no issues right now. And it's just like, I don't understand. Oh yeah. Well, there are, but also it is part of that is the virus has not fully spread to red states yet. It is getting there, but it is not, it is still taking its time and it's, it's starting to spike more in those red states. But as the weather cools, those red states are going to get hit a lot harder and you are going to see a response. Like one of, one of the biggest, uh, I won't call it a hypocrisy, but biggest bullshit things in America in recent memory is how, um, when there were crack problems in black communities, we started a war on crime and a war on drugs. When there were, uh, fentanyl problems in Appalachia, it's an epidemic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when red states start to suffer, um, it's the, 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 the tide is going to change. And I have a feeling that we will be preoccupied with the election and the aftermath thereof for this to really matter. But, uh, one of the big reasons that a lot of red hats can put their head in the sand about about this is because um, the GOP doesn't have to care about it yet. 
because it's not really impacting their their voters yet, or at least not their voters in you know states that have electoral votes. Um, well, but I I don't know because like Florida, you know, in Texas, like some serious, even like the Carolinas a little bit had some serious issues, yeah. and it seems like that didn't phase them, like. Cause it didn't get so, so bad. I think cause like we're, you know, like a lot of ways, like the coasts have in, in major hubs have like, you know, prevented its spread. Like you look at like Western Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania. I was just there this weekend. It's like some of those places have had like less than a hundred cases in their entire county the entire time. So like, yeah. they're just like, what the fuck are we talking about? Like, because the rest of us protected them. Exactly. Yeah. There's, and I, there's, just, I just worry that's part of it, but also just that even still, I mean, like how many deaths did Florida have? And it still seems like I don't give a shit. And it's just like, I don't know, man. Uh, well, we'll see. Um, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure how it, how it, how it's going to go, especially because the cultural moment has, you know, has become so much more of a death cult on the other side. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, and, you know, part of one of the great tragedies of this is, yeah, I don't know who said it, but something like, um, you know, it's times like this where if we do everything right, it's going to look like overkill, you know? Yeah. It's like. It's that thing of we lock everything down to keep cases low. So then at the end, you look and be like, yeah, but all those cases were so low. Why would you lock everything down? Look at the cases, you know? Right. And similarly, um, similarly, like the sort of conspiracy theory mindset of like, oh, well, it's just being overplayed at the most lightest level of conspiracy. Not that it's like designed by Bill Gates or something like that, but like the lightest level of conspiracy. It's like, oh, this is a thing, but it's being overplayed by Democrats to make Trump look bad. Right. And as soon as the election's over, it's going to get better. And it's like, well, yeah, because like, A, we'll probably have a vaccine in the next six months to a year slash B. If Biden does, they're like, oh, well, I guarantee you the second Biden wins the election, it's going to go away. It's like, well, yeah, he's probably going to do a bunch of shit to try and make it better real quick. He's already said he has a plan to like to help stop the spread. Um, (laughs) So he's like self-fulfilling prophecies of, of, you know, whatever you God, It's just so bad. Yeah. Oh, Greg, I don't know, man. It's tough to this is the problem. Like you said, it, it you try and escape into some of these areas, but then. And even just, I don't know if it's been affecting you and, and Karen, but Shay and I have been watching TV sometimes and, and you get, you feel uncomfortable when you watch people in a non COVID context doing things we're not supposed to do anymore. Yeah. Like people like being really close or being crowds and you're just like, Ooh, don't, no, you guys shouldn't go out there. Like, right. Uh, don't it, hug. It, don't hug. Don't hug. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's bizarre how much it, it, it does speak to the adaptability of the human mind, but like it, it really sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we went to the mall today. I know that sounds weird. It does um, sound weird. But we, you know, we're, we're furnishing our new house, even though we haven't moved in yet. But, you know, we, there is, Karen's wanted one of these love sack uh, oh. couches, these mm-hmm. modular couches. Very cool. Very cool. Um, she's wanted one for a long time. And we knew we were going to get one for the new house, have it all measured out and everything. Um, but they're having like a 25% off sale for the holiday, which is you know, on the price of one of these couches, like that's like a thousand bucks. So it's like, yeah, let's do it. And you can do it all online. But, um, we wanted to like, obviously like actually like see the different fabric swatches in person, you know, sit on one, you know, it's a big purchase. Mm -hmm. Um, and also because like you're buying these things, it's all modular and there's different sizes and they all fit together. I was like, I really just want to run this by a person in the store to make sure that the thing worth the configuration we're making is actually like it's going to work the way we think it's going to work right mm-hmm. um and there happens to be a showroom at our local mall um and it's like i know the drill like you wear a mask you don't like get all up in somebody's face for 10 minutes you know you keep your distance you don't 
touch everything and then put your hands in your mouth and, you know, <laughs> you're going to be fine. Um, but, you know, be careful. But still, it's kind of tough because, like, man, we haven't, like, we haven't really taken Charlotte anywhere, you know, like a store since all this started. Um, so we don't know how she's going to behave. And um, it's also just weird being out in public like this. Um, but we were there at the mall and it was very strange. Um, you know, you just see stores that are just like just doors locked, lights out, closed until further notice. And then um, uh, and then you would see people who they'd either be like pulling their mask down to talk to somebody or they feel like it's fine to walk around with your mask down unless you're like actively engaging in conversation, which mm-hmm. uh, inside like, is not you see the case. That, and then you get that anxiety spike when you see that person mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, God, it's an anti-masker. Mm-hmm. You're either like, are they going to get me sick or who's going to start a fight with this with this person? You know, yeah. it's just all this anxiety. And I oh, and yeah, I hate we, it when we were up in, in, you know, up near State College. Now, at State College, we went there to, you know, for a little bit to show she had never seen. So we kind of drove around and um, saw some of the Penn State sites that you see. Uh, but, you know, campus has a lot of rules. Everyone's wearing masks, typical, whatever. But, man, we were out in like the small towns a little bit. And it's just like there is just. No one wearing masks. Everyone's giving us weird looks for wearing them. And, you know, just, uh, I mean, like, you know, and, and places have signs posted and stuff, but no one's enforcing it, enforcing it or whatever. We went to like a winery and sat outside and the guy pouring the wine of a mask on. I was like, I almost wanted to leave, but I didn't want, you know, and just I heard him talking to people and he's like, oh, we've got some pizza or whatever. He's like, I'll make you buy it if you need. Because like there's rules in Pennsylvania that you need to sell a meal yeah. with alcohol or whatever to try and avoid bars. You know, and in this context, it was a small place and everything was outside. So it was fine. But, you know, he's like, I'll, I'll make you buy it if you if you're going to tattle on me or whatever. And it's just like, Hoo-hoo. it's just like, oh, God. OK. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, it's going to be weird in the winter because, you know, we we're kind of at the tail end of winter when things and, you know, there's so many options for outside stuff that are good right now. You know, outside dining and whatever. And it's like all that's going to disappear in a couple weeks here. And are people going to handle it? Well, I don't know. Nope. Nope. They are not. If there's one thing we've learned about Americans throughout all of this is that we do not like having our toys taken away. Yeah, that's true. we do not like being told what to do. That's true. At least you'll have a nice new home to focus on. Yeah. And I guess that, well, I guess that goes back to the Civil War thing. Like, can you imagine Americans today, any, any group of Americans from, of any political stripe, any group of more than 20 taking orders from anyone? (laughs) Very fair. Very fair. Within minutes, you'd have five of them break off and say that you're too controlling or, or too, you know, insert whatever direction right. that they are. And another five and they're saying you're not this enough. And then another five will say, I'm bored. I want to go play my, on my phone. And the other five weren't paying attention from the beginning. <laughs> right. Right. And then the very fact that because every every single person in America right now thinks they're going to be the leader they're, they're going to be the boss and they will not be told what to do by anyone. And how dare you, sir, infringe on my God given right to spit on this old man. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, like, like, like there'd really be a, like, like, can you imagine trying to like run military drills with a bunch of Karens? I apologize to my wife, but you I know, just say I was about to bring it up. Um, people, know, I sent, people know what this word means. I sent your wife. Uh, it was uh, 
Stephen King is very active on Twitter, basically just blasting Donald Trump 24 yeah. seven. But, um, today he's posted something about how he's like, you know what? We really got to pick a different word. Like there's a lot of really nice Karens out there. And I'm like, I sent it to your wife. I'm like, Stephen King's got your back at least. And she's like, this really, I really needed this right now. <laughs> it's a hard time to, uh, to be named Karen. Everyone's saying we should name it Ivanka, but yes, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time to be, to be a woman named Karen. <laughs> so, well, uh, this might go on record as our longest episode. I, I don't guess. know. I think we've, I think this is a, this is, this is, it's certainly near the limit, but I don't know if it's a record. But, you know, it makes sense since we've had a lot to catch up on. And, and yeah, uh, but we, but we spent, we only spent half of it actually talking about the stuff we usually talk about. That's true. That's true. Um, there were some things I, I want to get back to at some point. I want to talk about some of that DC stuff. I want to dive a little deeper into this, this Dune movie. Um, but maybe, maybe, you know, I hope that, uh, we can, you know, things, Things are so busy, but we can get back on on the the wagon a little bit, like on the horse. I like to mix my metaphors a lot. It's a very common me thing. Um, talk about some stuff. Maybe we can talk about the boys in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I make and a I bunch mean, of promises on air, then we have to do it right. I guess that's always worked in the past. Well, and I guess I guess going forward, just because like I, I don't want us to be just like a political show. There are people out there who do a better job than us. Oh, absolutely. But I think that like the idea that we can talk about things in a context that is COVID free, I think is a fantasy. And I think that if if you have to talk about the COVID context, context, you have to talk about the political context. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, here we are. Here we are. There is no alternative to the reality we have right now. (laughs) Oof. That's true, actually. You can't. I think it's one thing I've learned is that you can't truly escape when it's this pervasive, right? No, man, you can't even watch. Like that's the thing is, like you were saying, you can't even watch. Like go back and watch old episodes of Thirty Rock because you get weirded out because they're not wearing masks. Like I can't watch. I can't watch like post-apocalyptic shows because I'm like, well, that's not actually that's not how it went. <laughs> it's not how it's going, you idiots. Right. Like, oh, actually, it turns out that apocalypses are actually slow motion. Um, Do you think that there will be like a ton of media set? Like, let's say it's a year from now. I know there's are starting to be like things with commercials and stuff where you see people in masks, but like. Do you think people will set whole shows in 2020 in this context that, okay, let me put it this way. There will be shows about this, obviously, in this time period that are focused about this particular thing. And the the context is the point. But do you think that people will set shows or part of shows or movies or books in this time period where it's it's just the backdrop? I think like, movies and TV shows largely will try to ignore this year of history because um one it will be for a long time it will remain politically controversial Mm. um in the way that like we don't make a lot of movies about the iraq war yeah it's true you know um because it's still somewhat controversial we we make movies about vietnam because well we've established what happened there we've you know there there's a there's a dominant cultural narrative ditto world war ii um but there's another reason which is you know, smaller, but I think equally important is it's going to be hard to make movies where everyone's wearing a mask over half their face. Yeah. It's just, it's going to be hard to do. It's going to be, you know, everybody sounds like shit. Nobody's emoting, um, you know, and, and look, we pay actors cause they're hot. I don't want to cover up half of their hotness. (laughs) Um, so it's why we can never get a superhero movie for a long time. Cause I said, you can't put people behind a mask. We gotta look at their hot, hot faces. And that's what we did. 
you know, they spend most of the movies outside of the mask, don't they? It's true. Um, uh, so I think this is going to go largely ignored. Um, we're going to pretend it didn't not. Yeah, no, we're going to pretend it didn't happen for a while. I think that makes sense. And then, um, you know, in like 20 years, we'll start to like, you know, do movies that try to reckon the truth a little bit more. But, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be, um, it's going to be largely, uh, a gap in, in history in terms of like popular media and stuff, um, until a dominant cultural narrative about what happened comes along. And I think, I think we've, we've got to get through the Biden presidency, um, uh, or the alternative. Um, don't say that. Uh, please before don't say we're that. there. I can't, I can't. I was reading an article from Michael Moore the other day, or about Michael Moore, who was you know, notorious in 2016 for being one of the people who was like, you all realize Donald Trump's going to win this from like the very beginning, which, you know, there's always those people that get lucky with some stuff. Yeah, but, I was going to say survivorship bias on that one. Yeah. But. Yeah. But also just like, it still just makes nervous. She's like, it's happening again. I'm just like, Ooh, I think it might be happening again. Like, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I don't think so. I think that, I think the math is, is, um, I, I don't, I just don't think it happens. If it does, with I the would current be state of affairs, I don't think it happens with the current state of affairs. Yeah. I don't think that um, I don't think he's going to be able to reverse the narrative enough between now and then. I don't and I, I don't think the reality distortion field is going to hold up uh, enough between now and then. And he does not have the tailwind of an incredibly unpopular opponent that he had mm-hmm. going into uh, all he's got to run on is being an abject failure and trying to persuade people that Joe Biden's actually been president for the last four years, <laughs> um, which will work for some people. But I just don't think it's going to work for enough people. And I also think he does not have the tailwind of record low Democratic turnout. He's yeah. not going to have those boosts. Yeah. If anything. And, and yeah, Michael Moore might be right in that he has enthusiasm among his base, but enthusiasm does not generate extra votes. He has not grown his base. Those people might be much more rabid than they were four years ago, but them being more rabid does not make their vote count for anymore. Yeah. And I think that there's a, a growing to flip, flip the terminology. I think there's a growing silent majority of people who don't really want to talk about it still, you know, are in that sort of old, I think this is the old group of older white Americans who don't really like Joe Biden, but really don't, you know, really can't stand Trump, but aren't, they're not on social media. They're not talking about it, but just aren't going to do it this time around. Then maybe they did it last time. Maybe they set out last time. Maybe they voted third party last time, as well as a group of, of a silent majority of people our age who are like not super thrilled, but are going to vote blue no matter who. Right. Like those two groups together, I think, pushes it over the edge. But yeah, I just I, I think that, you know, if, if you add up the things that helped Trump win last time. It was, you know, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of votes against Hillary Clinton, which mm-hmm. is an advantage he does not have um, uh, actual candidates for the green and libertarian pro- candidates, which th- is not happening this year. True. Um, no, but what's that, Joe? Come on. What's her name? Libertarian? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, but there's no there's no there's no like significant third party votes this this time. Yeah, uh, there was record low turnout from Democrats which is not going to happen this time. Um, we hope. And there were a lot of Republicans who took a chance on him who have learned their lesson. True. Um, and uh, I just don't, I, all of those advantages he had, I don't think 
I don't think make up for his. Perf- yeah, I, I, he doesn't have this this time, and it's not like he can make up for those disadvantages with a great track record over the last four years. Yeah, I think you're right on all counts. I mean, logically speaking, I've been arguing this the whole time that like there's just no way it happens this time, and if anything, you know. Now I think, but there is. I mean, I don't think it happens the way it happened in 2016, but I would not rule out a uh, a Bush v. Gore scenario here mm-hmm. um, where if it's close enough and or there's enough um, chaos around the uh, nuts and bolts of the election, that is a problem. Yeah, that's spooky. And because I I do think, or I guess I should say, I do not think that Joe Biden uh, would go all the way to the mat if it came down to a legal fight or a extra legal fight, which it might come to. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, I, I like I feel like if it goes extra legal, like I said before, I think that the military is not on his side. The military recognizes Biden's power. It recognizes him as the president. And that's basically all you need. Um, but... You know, there are a lot of scenarios where the law breaks in Trump's favor. And I think that if the law, if there's enough institutional cover, I think the Democrats give it to him. Because, I mean, look, we're talking about Biden, Pelosi and Schumer. And those guys are apple polishers and rule followers and um, are terrified of being called a mean name by Republicans. (laughs) I yeah, that's almost where. It, it's almost the point where I've been where it's not so much like can Biden win, it's can he win by such a margin that Trump you can't, can't realistically you can't really dispute it, it like yeah. without being so much that it becomes like a see, it's all a big conspiracy voter fraud, blah, blah, blah. Like, um, I don't know that that's like it sucks. That's where we are. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. I'm not sure. I mean, you get into so much, you know, game theory here, and I don't know how the Supreme Court would decide it. It really depends on the on the facts of the case. Um, but uh, I really don't think that I don't think Trump would have a legal case going the voter fraud route because um, just like the nuts and bolts of the system, it doesn't. You'd have to make fifty state cases against about voter fraud Mm -hmm. and or, you know, whatever necessary state cases you'd have to make um, in order to invalidate like a state's results. Um, And I don't see this crew. That's a lot of work for these guys. Yeah. And I don't think they're doing it like they honestly this 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 is the crew that have had has had their cases thrown out of, you know, by sympathetic Trump appointed judges. They've had cases thrown out because the legal work is so sloppy, like. I don't think this I don't think these guys have the muscle to like mount effective legal challenges in enough states in the right states to invalidate a state's results. Um, so I don't know, you know, I don't know if they have the legal muscle to get this thing to the Supreme Court in a way that's going to be decisive. Um, so the voter fraud a- accusations, I think they might wash away just in the in the technicalities of it, you know? Yeah. And the fact that it's just bullshit, like you can't, it is, you can't, you can only, you know, jazz hands around some of that stuff so much before, like you said, some courts are going to be like, what are you actually arguing here? <laughs> like provide any amount of evidence right? or we're just going to throw the case out. Right. Um, that's going to be difficult. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. 
Um, I don't think that's an effective strategy. It might be an effective strategy for just producing enough confusion that it in a way suppresses turnout. But I don't think that's enough. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I mean, again, I'm not I'm no I'm no legal 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 here, but um, <laughs> another good YouTube channel, by the way. Yeah, he's he's good. But I don't. And, and there's a lot of this stuff where we don't exactly know how it goes. Like there's a lot of hemming and hawing about like, OK, what if one state. Right. Let's say, um, you know, what if uh, what's like like Arkansas or Alabama? What if Alabama decides that they're not going to certify their results? Right. Um, the, the theory is if enough states don't certify their results or don't send their electors to the meeting or whatever, um, th- and there's not enough for anybody to get to the 270 electoral votes they need to win, then it goes to the House of Representatives. Each state gets one vote. There are more red states than blue. Thus, it goes to Trump. Um, but that goes on the theory that, OK, if certain states like they opt out of the process because they refuse to certify their results or whatever, that you still need to get to 270. And this is the part where I don't know that there's agreement. If if a state decides to just sit this one out, does that just change the number you need to get to a majority? Or do you still have to get that same number as if that state was still in play? That part, I believe, is unsettled. So even that theory of like, oh, boy, if if a bunch of Republican states just say, you know, some state legislatures just say like, yeah, yeah we're, we're not going to certify these results because um, the pedophile conspiracy was too strong in our state. <laughs> so we can't certify these results. Um, I it's unclear about what exactly that means in terms of the electoral college math. I mean, I would say that it's more fair to say like, well, we're just going to, for the, for the sake of counting votes, we're going to pretend you're not a state. You have to get, uh, you get a majority of the states who are participating is what you need because otherwise what you're doing is you're basically allowing certain states to strategically just withhold votes in order to sway the election. Right. Right. Which seems to probably not be the intent of the founders. Um, but uh, we've never let the intent of the founders get in the way of a uh, conservative victory before. True, 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 true. Uh, or, you know, didn't bend their intent to our every whim or make up their intent. Their intent doesn't matter. I, it that's never mattered. I, even at my most, like, you know more conservative slash whatever libertarian leading times in my youth. I never understood that argument. I was just like, who fucking cares? Like <laughs> a bunch of guys were that thing 300 years ago. Like, I mean, not that long ago, but you know, whatever, like it, it, who cares? <laughs> right. It's, well, it's because it's because people, you know, people who have a certain view of another document and it's veracity and importance on their lives, then extended to other things that, you know, once again, they probably haven't read or understand the context of, but can use it as a symbol to keep their regressive views of the world. The the intent of the founders doesn't matter. The theory of democracy doesn't matter. None of these things matter. All that matters is who has the power to have it done their way. And, uh, and we as Democrats often fail to understand that (laughs) it's, it's, uh, to quote friggin' game of Thrones power lies where men believe it lies. And if Nancy Pelosi believes the power lies with Chuck Schumer or not Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, then that's where it lies. Yeah. Thanks, Game of Thrones. 
Yeah. And if we all acknowledge that it's up to the Supreme Court to decide who the president is, then that's who's going to decide who the president is. Seems like a bad precedent to set. I mean, I know it was already set, but well, that's the thing. One to reinforce the precedent doesn't matter. What matters is what do the people? What does where does what does power believe is true? Mm -hmm. And if power in this case is the military, it's up to where do they believe it is. If power in other cases might just mean armed citizens where do they believe it is that's that's what matters is who has the power to um you know enforce their interpretation which is a grim way of looking at things but it's a enlightening way of looking at things yeah whatever Foucault why don't you go to bed <laughs> kidding 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 <sighs> yeah well Let's hope that none of the worst case scenarios happen and it doesn't have to go to the Supreme Court. It doesn't have to go to the House and it can just be a landslide election in which some rich, unsuccessful, irrational crybaby will get his Fox News segment and whine about it for the next 10 years until he fades into obscurity. And we should be clear that the only way we get through this with minimal uh, uh, conflict, both... (laughs) Material and symbolic is with a absolutely decisive victory, um, which uh, um, means you have to crawl over broken glass to vote for the lesser of two evils. I was saying to, 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 to you earlier before we turned the recording button on that this doesn't feel like voting in a presidential election. It feels like voting in a Republican primary. And that sucks. And I hate it. Um, I absolutely hate it. I'm, and I am voting in a safe state where my vote really doesn't matter. And I could afford to just sit this one out because I do not like voting for what I see as a moderate Republican. I do not like voting for a Democratic establishment that sabotaged my, 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 my good friend Bernie Sanders on two occasions. Um, I do not like voting for a party that is going to spend the next four years telling me to shut up, sit down and pick my battles. Um, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to go and I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Um, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that my vote is counted accurately and submitted on time. And every single one of you motherfuckers has to do the exact same thing. There is no protest vote this year, guys. Yeah, I will echo that as someone who up until, I guess, 2018 probably had not voted for a two-party candidate uh, in like 10 years, just out of pure unabashed cynicism slash apathy slash anger slash disgust with a corrupt system. However, along with some shifting opinions, things are dire and I can't not. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I can't it's, not. It sucks. And the, look, I mean, it, should we have run Bernie Sanders in 2016? Yes. Would Bernie Sanders have won in 2016? Probably. Um, but all of the Democrats who either sat home or voted third party or wrote Bernie Sanders in uh, in 2016 in the hopes that it would teach them a lesson. It did not. <laughs> So if it didn't teach them a lesson in 2016, it's not going to teach them a lesson in 2020. Um, I, I think there is a strong theoretical uh, political science argument to be made that um, the only way the left uh, can inf- exert influence 
over the Democratic Party is by withholding votes. They will continue to run conservatives as long as they know that leftists will vote for them, right? That's a reasonable argument. But a protest vote or a withheld vote, it turns out, is a very weak message to the Democratic Party. They don't get it. It's not effective. Yeah, because the way they interpret when that happens is what happens 2016, what happens in a lot of other elections is they go, okay, well, we lost, which means the Republicans won, which means we need to court Republican voters. Right. Because there's no effective, there's really no effective, I mean, there is, but they don't choose to look at it. No effective way to understand how many people sat out the election or wrote in Bernie Sanders or whatever, because it wasn't left enough. Right. So really the only way to accomplish that is to, you know, support candidates at every level that align with your beliefs when, when you can. And that sucks because it's really hard to a, a lot of people don't have the ability to do that because they just don't exist in their area or they don't have access to finding those people or whatever. But I think that it's clear that the wrong message is being sent via protest votes, which sucks, but. Right. And, and, and the message, honestly, the big message that the, um, that the Democrats took away from the 2016 election was, uh, that Russia did it. Right. Right. Which, yeah. Did they learn that running a centrist candidate is not, uh, that doesn't grow enthusiasm? Nope. Did they, uh, did they learn that, um, you know, shady backroom shit against Bernie Sanders, um, is, is unacceptable? Nope. They thought Russia did it. So who knows how they're going to explain this loss, but they're certainly not going to chalk it up to not getting votes from the left. Um, if we want to, um, if we want to bring the party leftward, the again, it comes down to power. Your vote is very little power. Power in the party doesn't come from votes. Power in the party comes from individuals in positions of power within the organization, which means we need to get more uh, more leftists into the party, uh, into the party apparatus as representatives and senators and mayors and governors where they are in a position to exert influence over the platform and over the rest of the organization. Like you get Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House when you have a bunch of Nancy Pelosi style folks voting her into that position. Mm -hmm. If you want to have AOC as Speaker of the House, you need a lot more AOC types in, uh, you know, in Congress. So do that and quit your quit your bitching about having to vote for Joe Biden. I hate it too. But uh, again, the only way we win this election is by voting for him. And the only way we win the next one is by getting better candidates on the down ballot and getting them into positions of power within the party. Yeah, I think that's the only approach, not like the correct one or the one I prefer, but the only one that really from a past experience will have any any effect. Yeah, you're not you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get a leftist at the top of the ticket um, without, uh, you know, without sufficient leftist support elsewhere in the organization. Um, you know, we, we, we get a centrist candidate because everybody who's in a in charge of a committee and a fundraising group and all that stuff are all a bunch of centrists. Here we are. So let's do it. All right. I'm going to do that. All right. Go vote down ballot for. uh for 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 non-centrist candidates or in most cases you're going to have one option on every ballot and that's going to be pretty much your only choice generally 
So enjoy. That's true. But also, <laughs> I'll point out that almost every time I'm voting, there is a lot of empty slots, a lot of unopposed races. It's true. Uh, just saying. Just saying. Also, just saying, wherever you live, there's probably a DSA chapter nearby that you can go to or uh, I know it sounds shitty, but a Unitarian church. There's a lot of lefties that hang out there. <laughs> That's um, true. And, you know, um, building actual organization and, and power um, at a person-to-person level is uh, what we need to make anything happen. Um, so, you know, find those groups and get in touch with them and, you know, join the IWW. I don't know. <laughs> That's good advice. That is good advice. It's a, uh, it's hard. I think it's a lot of people have a lot of pent up energy right now. I think I know I do. Shit. Yeah, man. Um, it's, but it's, I get in my own head about where and how, and particularly given some COVID context, right? You get, you know, there's a lot of anxiety about being out in the world and interacting with people and whatever, but, uh, I'm trying to get pushed through that and just be like, doesn't matter. Just do it. Like something's better than nothing. Right. Yes. And you know, I think that the, to, you know, find a group, I, I guess, is the, is, is the way the, what I'm what I'm learning is that, you know, the only way we get anything we want is when we when we when we group up together to exert power um, and uh, tweets are not power. <laughs> Facebook posts are not power. Uh, a vote is very, very little power. But um, a union is power, an organized group who can, you know, go out and show up in force at like a town hall or a, um, you know, or a protest, like that is a larger measure of power. And one of the reasons the left has no power in American politics is because the left is not organized. There is no, there is no group you can join that speaks for the left. There's a bunch of little ones that all hate each other. Um, but there is no, you know, there is no movement that you can join that does it. And until we get there, we get nothing. So do it i don't know (laughs) i don't know i don't know where to go from there but that's that's at least that's at least a diagnosis well this has been uh greg and andrew's politics corner of the podcast corner (laughs) where you uh hear um a dad a sleep deprived dad talk about (laughs) his lefty podcast till 12 30 in the morning (laughs) no 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 i kid i kid i kid hey Uh, you know what hey (laughs) let me put it this way as of 30 minutes ago into this recording, it has officially been Labor Day. It's true. So now we're on topic. We are absolutely on topic. And I'm going to bring it full circle. And there's a lot of really good motifs in The Expanse that kind of talk about some of this stuff. There's a lot of things about like economic oppression of the working class, a.k.a. the people in the belt by oppressive bureaucrats and corporatists. I gotta say, though, a far-flung future where we're still doing capitalism is so depressing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, I mean, the Mar- the Martians are kind of more like communists, but like in, not in a good way. <laughs> if there is such a thing. Of course, the red planet gets the, gets the Stalinists. Well, they're not really communists, but they're more just like, uh, I guess, like a little more authoritarian in, in, in that sort of like we're on an economic quest to terraform our planet and everyone must be on board because otherwise we're all going to die. <laughs> no, that's, that's, uh, I mean, that, that sounds like early stage capitalism. Actually, <laughs> we have to exploit the shit out of these natural res- resources or, 
or 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 you die. Exploit, exploit, or we'll kill you. Well, yeah, I guess you could view it either way. Yeah, they view it as like you know we're on this multi generation mission to make a utopia, and therefore everyone must fall in line and do it. Otherwise, you're not which, contributing. Which is exactly the story that you would tell uh, the people you need to do the terraforming. Mm, mm-hmm, you would mm-hmm, tell them mm-hmm. that they were on a, 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 a multi-generational quest to build a utopia, almost a kind of a destiny that was manifest. <laughs> uh, While you are like, yeah, you're, yeah, utopia. I'm just going to, I need you to turn this planet into something hospitable so that I can like get some resources out of it. Because right now it's just a big red ball. I can't make money on a big red ball. That's but an interesting. If we can, if we can terraform it. this, it's a big, it's a big red ball of fucking real estate, and I can sell that. <laughs> um, I'm not sure the Martian Congressional Republic would view it that way, but maybe. So I bet you. you their leaders would. Uh, some of them for sure. Some of them for sure. Um, and then all that at the expense of all the natural resources you're pulling out of the belt and outer planets to feed into mm-hmm. a dead mm-hmm. planet too. Mm-hmm do all that yeah Which, yeah 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 well broad spoilers it doesn't go well <laughs> let's put it that way so uh but you should watch the expense okay <laughs> greg's messages go out and join dsa my messages do that while you're watching the expense yeah i was gonna say you can do both <laughs> yeah yeah do both do both you can you can join the dsa and still have nice things <laughs> uh i have a i have a co-worker who's very involved in dsa and she is only spoken kindly of it uh i may look yes. into this all right everybody all right i think we, we now it. have crossed the line into longest we did sorry about that maybe we yeah. should we might need to break this up in two episodes just to put it out i don't know that space wise <laughs> we just split it down the middle somewhere mid <laughs> midsection and, yeah. and just cut it <laughs> it's like those old typo negative records where they would just cut songs like they wouldn't even bother fading out it's like a oh, fuck it cut it right there who cares <laughs> not even on a beat just and just cut move on to the next one Saves awesome. a lot of time in production, I'm sure. Yeah, it's great. All right. Those guys. All right. Well, Greg, it's been good to catch up. Likewise. I missed you. Maybe Same. we should go on a hike sometime. Um, yeah, we could. Um, like me halfway in the middle or something. And yeah, let me see. That would put us somewhere in South Central Pennsylvania. We're both familiar with that. Mm, there's some nice, big, rocky, big piles of rocks out there. That's true. Uh, interesting. All right, and we can talk about more of this stuff. Maybe we'll record ourselves walking through the wilderness. Oh God! We'll do a, a in situ uh, episode. It's not going to be good audio, man. I <laughs> I like I I go pretty fast. Okay, well that's good well, to know. You might be so like dust, so but usually like when like I pass somebody else on the trail and you do that like oh good morning thing, they're like. They're like, hey, good morning. I'm like, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) You're working out something on the trail there? Uh, Well, I mean, I'm still not in great shape, but also, yeah, I I tend to move pretty quick. (laughs) I'm tall, so I I help. I help. Rage hike. (laughs) My gait helps me move pretty quickly on the trail. True. Hopefully I'm going to keep up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, buddy. All right. Later. See ya. See ya.